Warning, this podcast contains heavy spoilers for not just one movie, but entire franchises. We highly recommend going and watching these movies before listening to us as a companion piece that stitches all the timelines into one creepy, crime-ridden story. There will be no more spoiler warnings. We do not break character. After this, there is no turning back. You've been warned. Hit the music. You are talking about the nonsensical ravings of a lunatic mind. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! Why does Santa always come through the chimney? Is it about his son? <laughs> no, because oh. he knows better than to try the back door. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to It's Alive Alive podcast. This is a true crime paranormal interstellar podcast covering unbelievable stories that sound like they were ripped straight from the pages of a Hollywood script. I'm your host, a man of many names, the outlaw Harley Ray, the bruiser Bronson, Dr. HR, Smokenstein, THC, or you can just call me Josh for short. And with me as always is my very own Scream Queen, the perfect combination of beauty and brains, the brightest Smokenstein, the India the expert, the guts and gore, the gorgeous and sexy Amy Rose. Hi. And we're not going to be here for long today. Mm-mm. This is just a quick happy birthday message. Or happy birthday, happy Christmas. Happy <laughs> birthday, Chris Santa. Birthday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's Santa's birthday, not Jesus. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, for me, it's happy Yule. Because that's yeah. more my style. But definitely not happy birthday. Not happy birthday. <laughs> well, it could be some people's birthdays out there. Anyone who's having oh, their yeah. birthday on Christmas, happy birthday. It sucks for you because people only give you one present. And now Josh wants to sing you happy birthday. Happy birthday to you. <laughs> <laughs> but we are not leaving you empty-handed this week. Because, I mean, I just said we're going to be here for a short while. But anyone that's clicked on this file will see that it's well over three hours long. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. So, for we've well, been complaining for the last couple of weeks that we felt part three and four of our Halloween series didn't kind of live up to scratch. The sound quality was fucked. It was poor. Because I mixed up our mics. and Because Amy's really soft-spoken. So I've got to turn her up really fucking loud. <laughs> and even after I turn her mic up really loud, I have to then go into the editing app and turn her up again and boost her vo- uh, vocals to I'm match not that bad. It's I'm not, not your fault. Bad. I just got a really deep voice and you got a really light voice. You got a girl voice. I got a boy <laughs> voice. And then my voice is really fucking loud. And I got turning me down, but I mixed up our mics. Okay. And my mic got turned up to the max and yours got turned down. And I think I must have been rushing that week to try and get the episode up. So mm. I didn't really proof listen to it and then threw it up. And deleted the old files. Yep. And I know there's other podcasts out here listening to this now going, what did you do deleting the fucking old (laughs) files first? We don't, we're starting out. We don't have that much fucking memory space. I got to fucking work with what I got here and make space. But um, we went back and we fixed three and part four. And this week, so you can hear them in full with their intros. Mm Mm-hmm. But this week, we said as a little Christmas gift, we will bring a little Halloween to the festive spirit and give you Michael Myers part one, two, three, and four all in one big omnibus episode. So that's what you're getting today. And we'll be back again next week in the new year with a new story. 
But we will be still here for like I said, we're still doing stuff. We're not completely abandoning you either for uh, the holidays. I it's mean, our Patreon is quiet this week, but we have the mini monsters are up. Mm-hmm. The creepy patch of crypt is up, and we will talk to you again this Saturday on say what. That I'm going to stop calling a mini soul because the last <laughs> episode was 40 fucking minutes long. <laughs> so, happy Christmas, happy Yule, happy Hanukkah, happy Kwanzaa, happy whatever you celebrate. Just enjoy yourself, get drunk, eat loads of food, and have fun. And we will see you again next week. Enjoy Michael Myers and Laurie Strode's story. See you next week. Happy Christmas. So, no, unfortunately for us, we are about to start the story about a man who hasn't uttered a word in over 50 years. Not a noise, not a peep, not even a once-off tiny little whisper. Because the subject we're going to focus on for the next few weeks isn't really a man at all. Well, not a normal man at least. He has been called the boogeyman by many. Simply the shape by most. But luckily for us, while it stayed speechless for all that time, Others couldn't shut the fuck up about him, (laughs) leading to countless stories, insane fan cults, and multiple medical studies. So we have no shortage here when it comes to uh, source material. I mean, we've said it already. Mm. Do you know, there was a lot released after his death. Yeah, they were very easy to come by. Well, the Smith Grove Sanitarium psych files. Before we get into the into that, first let's get into the childhood of Michael Audrey Myers and what exactly happened to turn this seemingly shy six-year-old boy into a cold-hearted, unstoppable, empty shell of a human being and bloodthirsty killing machine. Michael Audrey Myers was born on October 19, 1957 and was the only son of Peter and Edith Myers and younger brother of Judith Myers. The family resided in a two-story house at 45 Lampkin Lane in the suburban town of Haddonfield, Illinois. Peter Myers was has once told Michael's doctors in Smith Grove that they knew from day one there was something wrong with Michael. He recalled how the hospital staff were left stunned by the silent child. Mike, Michael didn't make a sound from the second he left the room. No crying, no cute little baby noises, just silence. That would be scary. This got so bad that hospital staff and the parents were left guessing when it came time to feed him, wind him, and change him. For the first few weeks at home, like the, the parents would regularly have to check and see if Michael was still breathing in his crib. Yeah, but sure, like that's normal. Like I still I still find myself checking if the lads <laughs> are still breathing in their sleep if they're being too quiet. Like standing there not breathing myself to hear if they're breathing like I do the same thing, yeah. But have you ever actually thought while looking at them that they might not be breathing? Because that's how slow and relaxed Michael's breathing was. He was practically motionless. Motionless. She'd have to go over and touch to see. Put her ear up to him to see here. Oh, I still do that. (laughs) (laughs) My hand on their chest to make sure it's still going up and down. I watch the chest if I'm worried. At the time, it was just put down to a strange anomaly. Something he would grow out of. But if you ask me these days, I think he would have been classified as autistic very early on. He, uh, here's a little more on why. Uh, age didn't improve Michael's condition. He was four years old before he learned to walk and five before he finally uttered his first words. Yeah, these days he would have 100% been diagnosed early and treated as a young child. Like It's great that our understanding of special needs and autism in general like lets us get to kids like this earlier and help them have a better quality of life. Peter recalled that when Michael finally did start to move, it was in an 
inhuman way, almost robotic like. Think like, do you know the wrestler Kane? Yeah. The way he moves. That's how Michael Myers moves. Okay. Okay. Uh, or the person, or the Terminator. Terminator, Terminator. Being a, the Terminator without personality. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine Michael saying, I'll be back. I can't imagine ever him ever saying anything else, but that seems to be <laughs> I've never heard his voice. I've never even heard a recording of his voice, so I'm not 100% sure it's what that would sound like. It's the that he was supposed to have walked with. Do you Just know? imagine Kane from the WWE saying it. <laughs> <laughs> like he would for the rest of his life, Michael would exhibit long spells of nothingness. A form of patience, like he was waiting for something or someone to come along and inspire him. This would happen for the first time that we know of when he was just five years old. And there's also the incident that inspired Michael's first words. Peter said that the family dog named Rascal at the time, a lovable, playful, friendly pet that loved nothing more than to cuddle up to Michael and lick his face as Michael stared emotionlessly into the void, according to Peter. One day, Rascal was getting riled up at some kids he could see playing outside through the window. Peter said he went to go quieten down, but before he could get there, he heard Rascal yelp. By the time he got to Rascal's location in the house, he found Michael standing there, Rascal laying lifeless at his feet. It was at that point that an upset Peter screamed, Michael, what did you do? Michael simply replied, quiet. Then went right back into the void that was his brain. It must have been incredibly hard for his parents and or any parents of a child with autism in the 1960s. Like, there was very limited understanding of the nature of autism in the 60s. Like, it was often viewed as a singular and like, rare disorder. And there was very little recognition of the wide range of symptoms and abilities that individuals with autism might possess. As a result of that, there was a huge lack of, 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 of like appropriate services and institutionalization was all too common. There was an awful lot of social stigma. There was also a pretty shit theory in the 1960s called the refrigerator mom theory. So that's where they thought that autism was caused by the lack of maternal warmth or like emotional bonding. So it was often like blamed on the mother as well. I think that's fucking awful. So that's kind of like, you know, again, kind of situation where they're saying again might be the way he was because of the mother being so attached to him is what they're saying like this is the cause of autism is that kind of attachment that's what they thought in the 1960s which was an awful thing to put in the mother yeah, you know well, as in you, there's a too much, too much market well, as it is come like, here, come here. there's a lot a lot of views on uh that side of on sex in general in the 1960s that are they didn't interrupt over the next year, they could see Michael become more and more withdrawn. He didn't have friends in school and kept to himself, possibly living in his own little kind of fantasy world in his head. Mm. And there's actually a study being conducted by the University of Arizona to see how uh, how deeply like fantasy warps the serial killer's mind. They're actually studying in, it's nine cases of 14 to 18 year olds who have clinically significant fantasies of becoming serial killers. So it's attempting to see if they can spot potential killers based on the potency of sadistic fantasies of teenage boys and see if there's any way to interrupt the link between like fantasy and action. So like, do you know, when a serial killer goes to kill, there's like six stages. 
Hmm. And the first stage is when they start to lose their grip in reality. So they're trying to see if there's some kind of trigger that they can stop it, like yeah, at that yeah. point, like before well, they start to lose it. Plenty of examples. I mean, I bring him up a lot because again, it was the case I read the most about with BTK. Oh yeah, that guy was in a full blown fantasy fucking world the entire time he mm-hmm. was operating. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, I mean, like in a like real genuine like his own fucking universe, like mm. while he was doing it, and a lot of I suppose with sociopaths in general not being able to feel other people's emotions you're going to fantasize your own kind of your own way of doing things you know because yeah. you're not worried about the other person you're not you're, ta- oh, you're not yeah. thinking about the, how it's going to affect anybody else around you so your fantasy world is going to overtake mm. it and you're going to have these circles who are going to play out those fantasies eventually like yeah do you know yeah. but yeah yeah well it was a few months after the rascal incident and just under two weeks after Michael's sixth birthday that he would commit the act that would cement his name in time as the living embodiment of the boogeyman. On October 31st, 1963, Michael committed his first act of murder. His parents were away and he was at home with his sister Judith, who was supposed to be babysitting him but cared more about spending some intimate time with her boyfriend Danny. After Danny left, Michael, dressed in a clown costume, went into the kitchen, picked up a kitchen knife from the drawer, then walked to his sister's room and stabbed Judith to death. He then quietly walked back down the stairs and into the front yard where he waited for his parents and the police to come and arrest him. From this point until his first escape in 1978, Smithsgrove Sanitarium would become the home of Michael Myers. It's from the sanitarium case files and records that we have, that we get much of the rest of our information on Michael's early life. Now, the next portion of our show will be like transcripts and notes from sessions with our meetings about Michael, along with doctor's notes about mm. Michael. A good portion of these notes coming from his primary doctors over the year and a man that we would eventually become his legal guardian, Dr. Samuel Loomis. Mm-hmm. So just a little background on Samuel Loomis. So before becoming a child psychiatrist, he was a soldier in World War II, where at one point he was a prisoner of war. And after the war, he attended college to earn his doctorate in child psychology. And it was around that point in his life that he met Elizabeth Warrington at a party in London. So the two, the two of them apparently smiled at a party in London and the rest is history. They would eventually become very good friends. They never married or they didn't really have what you call a conventional relationship. Apparently Loomis was too wrapped up in his work to commit time to his own personal relationships. But they did have a son together named David. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, I know the way he was about Michael Myers. So I oh, <laughs> imagine, can't like, imagine his uh, yeah. primary goal, primary... That was his life's work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. In 1957, Elizabeth pleaded with Loomis to stay with her in England, but he felt that he belonged in the States. And as he left, he chose not to hug her, as he thought it would be misleading and could imply that there was a chance of more commitment and love between them. But I kind of get the feeling that he was actually kind of a bit cold. You think Loomis was a bit cold? Yeah, yeah. I think that maybe Michael was a bit more of a, not like it it was more like a labor of love. I I I I I do I know I feel like, like a... Michael might have came for him is like uh do you know Colin Robinson on um what we do oh, in the shadows an energy vampire an energy vampire I think yeah. he fucking just sucked all the positivity mm-hmm. out of Loomis and you know that 
the harder Loomis found it, it the, the more dawned on Loomis that he couldn't fix Michael, mm-hmm. the, the the more fucking downhill he went, and more cold and more separated from life. He, I think, for him to even know know in his own head that that kind of evil lived in this world was too much for him to be to to show emotion towards anything else. Oh yeah, yeah. I would just say though, if Michael Myers was an energy vampire, he'd be like, you know, Colin Robinson's like idle, not even to having to say a word to be able to drain everybody's energy, <laughs> just by walking to a room. Done. I suppose <laughs> it's like the uh, the monster uh, monsters Inc. argument there, isn't it? Are you, <laughs> you going to take that? Are you going to get your monster energy from laughter or scaring? <laughs> Colin <laughs> Robinson is. You're going to scare the living fucking energy out of him, <laughs> or are you just going to bore the energy yeah. out of him? <laughs> So there is little known about uh, David Loomis other than he went into the family business following in his father's footsteps to become a psychiatrist. So from what I can see from my research, the father and son were pretty estranged and David harbored a lot of resentment for being put second to Michael Myers all his life, which is completely 100% understandable. Yeah, I mean, like David, he didn't even visit Loomis on his deathbed. I mean, I, I haven't gotten this far into it yet, but I'm pretty sure there are multiple quotes I read. Mm. in case files and newspapers and stuff like that of Loomis saying although he was strong felt strongly that Michael should pretty much just be put down like a rabid dog that Michael was like a son to him even without them ever speaking properly that John Michael was like a son to him and then there's here's his son who's a doctor following in your footsteps wanting Mm. you to be in your life and then on the other side that John Michael came to him at six yeah. There is a lot of room for a kind of like, you know, I know Mike couldn't really bond, maybe, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, he wasn't, maybe the, bonding he wasn't the bonding type. But <laughs> Unless you so, wanted to bond you to a wall with a knife. <laughs> oh, yeah. So Loomis died in 1996 from complications of heart failure following a heart valve replacement surgery. And his body was cremated. So Loomis was a driven and goal minded man, but he was also a very strict and no nonsense man. He demanded answers when he wanted them. So at the time, he had a softer side when dealing with those who he could relate to and to those he un- who, you know, who understood what he wanted, but you did not want to take him off. Sounds like a great man. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't mind softer side to people he, he related to. He had a softer side relate? to a child like Michael. Really so I mean, yeah. <laughs> he related. Well, maybe coming from a, being a prisoner of war in World War Two. Holy shit, He yeah. related to Michael being trapped in a place, you know, Michael's trapped in his head. That's true. And, and, you know, he can't get out and he's got this rage and anger maybe being a prisoner of war, World War Two, which would have been, yeah. at the time, the most horrific thing to fucking happen in the world, yeah. you know, cause nuclear fucking warfare to be <laughs> brought upon yeah. the fucking world. Maybe yeah. he was relating to him in that sense, you know? Maybe. How many of his sisters did Loomis kill? <laughs> Fair point. <laughs> uh, but that's just it. He sounds like a great man. One could argue that Michael's treatment at the hands of Sam Loomis only worked to further Michael's condition, though. In his 15 years treating him, Michael only fell further and further into his catatonic state. What we'll do now is kind of go through case files and notes, and we can discuss as we go along. But, like, what I mean when I say about like his treatment it's almost like uh, i'll talk about it a lot more later on mm. but when doctors thought they were getting through to michael and they were treating michael michael was really the one baiting you in okay 
Michael is smarter than what he leads on. Yeah. Just because he's quiet does not mean that he he's empty up there. Okay. Do you know? Yeah. So again, the next section covers all of Michael's first day at the sanitarium up until his escape and killing spree in 1978. There are sections of time where there's no info. But that's just because nothing happened and there was just nothing noteworthy to take down. Mm. There was occasions where Loomis was dismissed as his primary doctor, brought back, and then due to Michael's catatonic states, you know, there was nothing to take note of. And eventually they kind of put him as a lower class kind of inmate. They didn't worry about him. As long as he was being docile and he wasn't causing any trouble, Mm. he was kind of left to the side. But every now and again someone would you know attempt to get through to him yeah and then when they weren't able to do it they'd call loomis back in and he'd of course yeah, yeah. take a whack at it yeah thing is they would try everything with michael but nothing ever worked nothing caused a stir in the monster so once he was docile and didn't cause any issue they would just abandon his case out of frustration medicate him and try and leave him live out his days in smith's grove right. loomis knew better though Let's get into the hospital notes and transcripts, okay? So okay. this is from his admission notes and court notes from, you know, straight after the first murder, after mm. Edith's death. Okay. So this is exactly what's written down, transcribed. Michael was admitted to Smithgrove Warren County Sanitarium by the state after his parents, Peter and Edith Myers, found that he had fatally stabbed his sister, Judith Myers, on October 31st. Michael's parents returned home to find him in their front yard, knife in hand, and with a blank expression. In a statement by Peter Myers to the head of the Smithsgrove Psychiatric Board, Dr. Adam Vincent, he remarks on Michael's apathetic nature. The following is the previously mentioned statement. Michael was always a different boy. No friends, no affection towards pets, and barely ever spoke. All Michael did was sleep, eat, brush his teeth, repeat. Sure, he had a life outside of his daily routine, but it wasn't much. Kids at school would pick on him, and I even saw it when he, I dropped him off at school, but I did. But it didn't look like he cared. I just don't understand him, and I don't think I ever will. I hope you can fix my boy, Doc. It won't bring my daughter back, but please fix him. Upon arrival at Smithsgrove, Michael was immediately seen by Dr. Adam Vincent. Dr. A- Dr. Vincent attempted to conduct an interview with Michael, but Myers simply would not speak. The following is a transcript from the failed interview. Start. Dr. Vincent. My name is Dr. Adam Vincent. The date is November 1st, 1963, and I am joined by a newcomer, Michael Audrey Myers. He is a six-year-old and has admit, was admitted to Smithsgrove by the state after murdering his sister with a large knife. Now that we have all of that out of the way, how are you, Michael? Myers, silent. Dr. Vincent, do you feel bad for doing what you did? Myers, silent. Dr. Vincent, your father told me you were quiet, but I didn't know you were this quiet. Ha ha. Myers, silent. Dr. Vincent, patient appears to be severely withdrawn, his eyes only staring forward and with no movement whatsoever. Sorry about that, Michael. I have to record this little talk we're having, but you know you know what? It would be an even better talk if you'd say something to me. Myers, silent. 
Dr. Vincent, fine, how about this? Why did you kill Judith, Michael? You, your own sister, so she was minding her own business and you stabbed her to death with a knife. Why, Michael, why did you do such a thing? Myers turns to face the wall. Dr. Vincent, Michael, why don't you look at me? Did I upset you? Dr. Vincent touches Myers' shoulder. Myers immediately removes Dr. Vincent's hands from his shoulder. Dr. Vincent, patient is shutting me out completely. I'm going to have to shut down this interview. If you can call it that, do you want to say goodbye, Michael? Myers, silent. Dr. Vincent, that's what I thought. Well, goodbye, Michael. End. After a bit of coaxing, Myers, uh, the photographer there, was able to get a picture of his with him facing forward. The photographer claimed to cover the flash with a towel, thinking that Myers would be alarmed by the sudden bright light. However, the resulting photo was that of Myers' silhouette, rendering the photo worthless. The photographer cited patient admission guidelines when confronted by Smith's Grove the t- uh, director, uh, Thomas Blight. The photographer stated that nowhere in the patient admission guidelines does it say that he has he was obligated to take a photo that shows the patient's face. The photographer further argued that Myers was a stubborn little guy, not allowing him to take a proper photo, and said guidelines uh, and said guidelines have since been updated due to this loophole. Myers' admission photo was left as is, so it's basically you can't see his face properly. Yeah. There are later on. I mean, I, I'll post stuff on Instagram in two weeks' time when we're doing uh, kind of near the ending of his story to okay. clear fa- uh, p- mm. uh, pictures of his face. But most of the ones from the seventies. They're very shadowed. They're very silhouetted. They're, yeah. Again, they're going to be up on our Instagram. Uh, on November 2nd, Myers was given a mandatory psychological evaluation. Before the, before the state was to decide on whether to keep Myers for a, a finite time or indefinitely, his mental state had to be examined by specialists in, in child psychology. Dr. Adam Vincent referred Myers to one Dr. Samuel Loomis, an expert in child psychiatry. Dr. Loomis was given the assignment at 10.31 a.m. by Dr. Vincent and the evaluation was to take place at 1 p.m. However, the evaluation had to be set back to 2.28 p.m. because Myers was engaging in uncooperative behavior. Myers refused to leave his living quarters. No matter what the staff would say or do, Myers would only sit in his bed, look straight at the wall. As their facility rules, especially in the child's wing, children's wing, staff are to find any other means of getting patients out of the room before resorting to physical removal. Dr. Loomis eventually came to Myers' living quarters in an effort to get him out through persuasion. According to witnesses at the scene, Dr. Loomis knelt by Myers' bedside, looking up at his face. Loomis, still looking directly at Myers, reached into his coat pocket, pulled out a piece of paper. Dr. Loomis unfolded the paper, revealing to Myers a photo of his house. Myers slid from his bed onto the floor, following Dr. Loomis out of his living squatters. So, do you want to run them through the, t- the transcript of their first interview? Because I feel like I haven't heard your sexy voice in a little while. So, come on, sir. So, Dr. Loomis, it is November 2nd, 1963. My patient Michael is sat across from me. I'm talking to you, pal. And he hasn't uttered a word since his arrival to Smith's Grove Sanitarium. At least, not what we've heard. All right, friends, why have you followed me here? Myers, silent. Could it be because I showed you a photo of your home? Do you want to go home, friend? Home. Ah, see? You can speak to me, Michael. I won't bite. Why are you here? 
Judith. Judith? What do you remember about Judith? Sister. Indeed, Michael. Indeed. You're doing very well. Since you're doing so well at answering my questions, I think you deserve a reward. How about a candy, Michael? Here, take it. Myers hesitates, waits, slowly reaches out to retrieve candy. There you go. Go on, eat it. It's cherry. Myers, motionless, silent. Well, you can eat it whenever you feel like. Now let's talk. What happened to Judith? Do you want to talk about that, Michael? Myers, silent. You won't get into any trouble. Myers, silent. Myers. Let's move on then. You were trick-or-treating, right? How much candy did you get? Was it any good? Or just tons of apple that old geezers like myself hand out? Myers, Judith. Well, what about her, Michael? Alone. Was she alone? Me. Why were you alone? Myers, silent. Was she meant to be babysitting you, Michael? Judith. Yes, Michael, Judith. Silence. How do you feel about Judith? What? How do you feel about Judith, Michael? Was she nice to you? Maybe a bit mean like my sister was. Feel? Yes, Michael. How do you feel about Judith? Myers, silent. Do you know what feel means, Michael? Myers, silent. To feel is normal, Michael. We all feel in some way or another. Myers, silent. We all get happy, sad, angry, so on and so forth. Do you ever get angry, Michael? Myers, Hangs head. Do you ever get sad? Myers silent. Do you ever get happy? Myers silent. I see. Your silence speaks much louder than your words, Michael. Would you like me to explain feelings to you? Myers raises head. All right, well, feelings are what make people happy, sad, or angry. Right now, I'm happy to be with you, but I'm mad that you don't know what feelings are. Do you feel anything like happy, sad, or angry in that right now, Michael? Myers silent. Oh, Michael, how confused you must be in this world. You know, I once met a little boy, not much older than yourself, who didn't know what feelings were. I taught him the idea, how to understand what people are feeling and so on. Do you want me to begin teaching you too, Michael? Myers silent. We can do that later. Right now, let's just focus on this moment. Where are we, Michael? Room? Yes, we're in a room. What color is it? White. Where is this room? What is this big building built around the room called? Smith's Grove. You're right, Michael. And what's today's date? What number of day of the month of November are we in right now? Second. Good job, Michael. You're a bright child. You just need some help is all. Well, that's all the time we have for now, Michael. It was marvellous talking with you, my friend. I look forward to our next talk. But until then... Take care, my friend. Myers escorted from room. Michael seems to be experiencing the classic symptoms of childhood psychopathy. No emotion, no understanding of right or wrong, no moral compass. Michael, as distant as he may seem, is very much lucid, very much aware of his surroundings. It would appear that all he does is listen, watch, learn. If his father's statement is accurate, I would say that Michael could even be experiencing obsessive compulsions. We'll see where this leads us, but for now I would advise holding on to him until we can figure out why he murdered his sister. End. End. So first impressions here. He seems to be empty as a human, just a shell, you know, but 
there are small signs of something being in there. In, in these early stages, Loomis does manage to get a, the odd response out of Michael, and he does become almost like his master in a sense of, of comparing like Michael is a vicious dog, you know. He did as Loomis told him. Mm, he's very optimistic here. Like He really thought he could save Michael. I wonder if he'd given up sooner. Uh, would he have given up sooner if he'd realised how much of his life it would end up consuming? The transcripts generally continue on like this for a while with Loomis trying to get reactions from Michael through various different methods. Mm -hmm. One of the first methods he attempted was the crayons and colouring book. So Loomis bought in uh, what he thought Michael was a present. So it was like a colouring book. Just an empty mm -hmm. colouring pad, a notepad and mm -hmm. uh, crayons. Mm -hmm. And basically left them off with that, like, you know. Yeah. And in their next session, he wanted to see what he had drawn and they were going to look through it. Yeah. So the first drawing was just a picture of a girl. Okay. You know, Loomis says, very nice, lovely. Is that your sister, Judith? Myers, as usual, silent. Yeah. Next one is a drawing of a family. So you have the mom, the dad, the sister, and the little boy. But the little boy was drawn in red, whereas the rest of the family was drawn in black. Okay. So you asked him about that again, but Myers, again, silent. But, yeah. But, you know, it's noteworthy that in this family drawing, Myers has put himself as a different colour. He, he's outside of the norm when it comes to this. It's sad when you look at the drawing. The next drawing is a picture of the girl again, mm. still smiling, but mm. covered in blood. Okay. Now, Loomis asked Michael about this. Mm -hmm. And he was like, why is the girl smiling if she's covered in blood? She's obviously hurt. Why would she be smiling? And this was again to try and get kind of the uh, notion of emotion through to Michael. Mm. And, um... You know, he was explaining to Michael that when somebody's hurt, they'd have a sad face on. Yeah. And um, that was another thing they tried was they, they um, put, like, cards out, emotional kind of cards out. Mm. And um, they'd ask Michael, like, you know, what's happy? And he'd point at Basically, like, putting emojis on a yeah, table yeah, in front yeah. of him yeah. in, in cards. Okay. It's like, what's happy? And they'd get him to pick, but he, he just could never get the right never emotions, matched. like, you know. Yeah. And this was, again, here, he's, he, Michael, when he was kind of confronted with this, this mm. girl, she's covered in blood, she's obviously hurt. So she wouldn't be happy, Michael. Why? She, she should look sad. Michael just did the head cocking and confused dog kind of look. Yeah, going, yeah. You know, I, I don't understand what you mean, like, you know. So, for a number of years, this went on, and a lot of time of the time, as I said before, Loomis was left to his own devices. As long as mm -hmm. Michael didn't hurt anyone, what harm were they doing? And who knows, maybe Loomis would do the impossible and crack the, enig the enigma that was Michael Myers. I mean, Michael was a pretty patient guy. He was happy to go along with the routine, like, why he waited well, for what, whatever it was he was waiting for. <laughs> so, that kept the men in charge happy, and it gave Loomis a lot of freedom. So over the years, Michael, he had a few visitors outside of his doctor, especially Dr. Loomis, but his father did come to visit him once. Okay, mm -hmm. yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> so Peter visited Michael on November the 10th, 1965. And in order for Michael to be allowed to see his father, he had to cooperate with the, you know, like a few mandatory shakedowns of, of his living quarters and his person by the orderlies. And then he had to go to physical afterwards with the Smith's Grove physician. So no cause for concern was found on either occasion. Okay. So Peter, he brought this card with him from Michael's fifth birthday. And on the front of the card, Michael had kind of, you know, blacked out the face of the youngest kid. 
on the front of the card. So there was like two boys and a girl. And then the youngest boy had his face completely blacked out. So kind of similar to the red child next to the black family. Mm. Is this? Yeah. Exactly. So that was kind of, he was, he was brought in by Peter to try and get a reaction from Michael. But there was no initial reaction from Michael. It was just the usual. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Myers, well, it, silent. It does go into reaction. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But uh, so when he was asked by Loomis why he defaced the card, when Michael was asked, there was no response. And that kind of pissed Peter off a bit. He started getting louder and started demanding answers from Michael as to why he'd killed uh, Judith. So he was like shouting that he was evil and that there could be no salvation for him. That word pisses me off. Yeah. Fuck off. Have, Sorry. You know, like, yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's terrible what happened. It would be a terrible thing. Like, oh, we have two kids. Yeah. If one of them killed the other, oh it God. would destroy us. Yeah. Because you lose both your kids in that exactly. scenario. But I would still be visiting my child, my other child in the hospital every single mm-hmm. fucking way. Every day if I could. You know? I don't think I'd ever give up. I'd never turn no, to no, my no, child's no. evil. You'd no. never give up hope. No, so the, no. These two were very quick. So I would ask you again, what was there, Michael? What was it about Michael Myers that made people around him just sense that there was something not mm. fucking right there? That exactly. they, there was no hope? And why could Loomis not fucking see it? <laughs> why is <laughs> he did eventually. the only trained guy that took him how long to see oh, it? I know. But, he yeah. got there, but hence, we're going to see why. Let's go. So he tried, Loomis tried to get the situation back under his control, telling Peter that evil was a human construct. But nothing could change Peter's mind. And he continued on his rant, demanding that Michael looked at him. So Michael did look at him. But at the same time, he took a pencil from his notepad, which had been kind of, it was included in the cranes in the notepad, and he jammed it into Peter's Oh, fuck. Fatally wounding him. Yeah. So about eight months after having killed his father, in which time Michael did not speak a word. Shock fucking horror. He began, well, for a six-year-old, <laughs> <laughs> he began cognitive assessment sessions with Dr. Loomis. So this Actually, was yeah, hold on, before you keep going, people who, who don't know, we have a nine-year-old and a five-year-old. Mm-hmm. Once those motherfuckers realize how to talk, work out how to talk. Let's not just call them the MF They words, do not Josh. shut the fuck up, ever, ever. We got one of them who just talks in his sleep. All night long. All night long. All night long. And whatever the most popular video game is, that's what you're going to be listening to. If I hear Roblox one more time, if I hear Minecraft one more time, (laughs) I've never taught anybody could make me not want to know about Super Mario. (laughs) <laughs> you know what when you cancel it out with the funny things like you know them pretending to fly when they're asleep and stuff like that it's the, <laughs> oh god yeah they do funny yeah. stuff i joke i joke but did jesus christ the fact that this kid uh, is six years old did not speak mm-hmm. that I mean, is uh that just is to just... put it into perspective one of ours could come to us uh, and i'd be reading something like right give me two seconds okay so anyway but anyway it's like oh god <laughs> So yeah, yeah, this is crazy that this kid isn't uh-huh. talking. But anyway, so, so eight months. This was things, uh, you know, like the cognitive, the cognitive assessment sessions. That things like what you w- went through. Do you want know, the, 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 the faces, faces. Yeah, exactly yeah. in the papers? Um. So and and you know things like take him outside to play ball with them, just to try and kind of open him up a tiny bit. Get him moving. Right? Exactly. Hand eye coordination. Get your mind working. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And and being inside, shut inside. The whole idea of taking him out to play ball was being shut inside. Obviously, you know, it's a cabin fever. Yeah, it, yeah, it's yeah. going to yeah. So coming up to Michael's um, birthday on the nineteenth of October that year, kind of Loomis noticed that Michael was becoming more and more withdrawn. 
So he also noted that obviously October was a complicated month for him. And in order to decide, you know, to, to kind of make him up time even more, he decided to try and take him on an outing for his birthday. I, I will just uh, stick in here one little thing because they were giving him this owing for good behavior as well because Michael wasn't uh, <laughs> causing any trouble in the area. And people might ask, mm. what about killing his fucking father not so long beforehand? In the end, his father got the blame for that one. Oh, his father will get the blame for that one, but I will because just point out as well that Smith's Grove had um, had a policy that, uh, and 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 even with the level of restriction that Michael was on, like Loomis fought hard to bring him out. Like there yeah. was level of restriction, but but I, like Loomis read the fine print to a T, and yeah, he fought, like, but, yeah. but when it comes to like him not get beat, getting in trouble in this murder that he committed of his fucking father, it was seen as his, his father, father antagonized yeah. a, a child that he knew was already. They had a tendency towards this, sense, so yeah. it was the father's fault in the end, and Myers wasn't actually yeah. in trouble for that yeah. one. Exactly. So, as I said, like Smith Grove, they had they had a special kind of ease of restrictions on special occasions, and kind of Michael Michael's case wasn't any different. So, in order to take him out, uh, Loomis, he was going to need the permission from Edith Myers as Michael's legal guardian, which was easier said than done. Yeah, if he thought what happened, <laughs> he thought Peter was negative. Uh, oh, <laughs> Christ. Like, he, he just thought that yeah, at least he was there. Bonkers. At least he went yeah. to the hospital to make an attempt to get through to Michael. Let's mm-hmm. see how he did the situation. <laughs> and she made her feelings very clear about him wanting to take Michael out and she went so far as to sign over her guardianship to Loomis. So she, she wanted, just got rid of the child. She, she wanted like, to yeah, you want to take him out no problem she was done with him no in her defense he had annihilated her whole fucking family she he had basically killed her daughter killed her husband and i mean their relationship was already fucked after the murder of edith and he had taken himself out of the equation by being locked up and being so vacant and emotionless Mm. so now this woman who had uh the american nuclear family a boy a girl a house you know Mm. a husband has fucking nothing, and it's yeah. all through this really tragic, crazy fucking situation. Like, oh, yeah, you know, yeah. it's this, this child that they knew from day one there was something wrong with it, there was something empty about it, mm. there was something not quite fucking yeah. right. So, as Michael's legal guardian, Loomis signed off on the excursion. And on October 19th, on his birthday, Michael was once again shaken down, and Dr. Loomis's car was also inspected. And again, there was no cause for concern. So they had a two-hour window to take Michael out, and they, Joe, you know, they were extremely strict about that. It was like he, he's not back within two hours. Uh-huh. Law enforcement is getting involved. You wish they were that strict about all this in seventy fucking eight when we get to that, huh? All right. <laughs> So it all started to go well and Michael even uttered a few words to Loomis. So when Loomis asked Michael about where he'd like to go, Michael said home. Hey. Yeah. So obviously that not being an option, Loomis started to kind of converse about him about, about where they should go. So they're passing a costume shop and when Loomis kind of sees that, he kind of caught Michael's attention with a clown costume. Which is what Michael was wearing the mm-hmm. night he murdered either. Which, if I was Loomis, I wouldn't be bringing him to go get a clown costume. Again, this betrayed man here. So, while they were stopped at a crosswalk going to the costume shop, and Loomis, he he was explaining to Michael what crosswalks are for, and the pedestrians crossing, and we would let them cross, because cars might hit them, and next thing, Michael now, obviously, his feet didn't reach the pedal, but he grabbed the steering wheel. He made an attempt. He made an attempt. Loomis kind of coughed. He was like, you know, he asked him, he's like, Michael, are you, you know, are you trying to drive the car with all these people in front? And that's, you know, he was like, you know what, bring you home. 
<laughs> do you know what else could he do? And that's it. That's it. Yeah. Like, we've spoken about his positivity towards uh, trying to rehabilitate Micah. Mm. That at this point we we see an end to that. So after the incident in the car and the death of Peter, Doctor Loomis was seriously beginning to question his ability to reach Michael at any level. But before he could decide on his next course of action, action was taken for him and he was let go from Smith's Grove, ultimately stopping him from officially treating Michael anymore. He was fired instead of reassigned the case because investigation had shown that the pencil that Michael had used to kill Peter was a gift from Dr. Loomis yeah. with the crayons. The higher-up believed that Loomis had become too close to Michael, too familiar and forgetting something sometimes about procedure and official guidelines. Loomis's relaxed approach to the usually docile Michael resulted in a man's death, and that couldn't go unpunished. Plus, his peers felt he had had his shot at Michael, and it was time for him to move over and let someone else take a look at the dark and twisted mind of the boogeyman. But who would have the balls? <laughs> so, a Dr. Parker would, and he tried first, but he was met with silence, as was every other doctor's attempt for years. Myers, silence. <laughs> so he Michael became what everyone always said he was a machine he moved aimlessly along the sanitarian routine taking his meds going to exercise time although he didn't really take part much I can see him like in aerobics just moving his arms I read <laughs> like from doctor's reports that he was actually taking you know I before he was brought out to the exercise yard mm. they would have physicians come in and do you know, like, he was in Return of the Living Dead, they showed uh, when they went into the morgue to talk to the doctor. Yeah. And uh, he's moving the body parts of the dead body that he's working on. Huh. And they're like, why are you doing that? It's like, us oh, to work out the rigor mortis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they literally used to have to do this with Michael. Michael would sit so silently and so fucking impatiently. A physician yeah. would have to come in. Yeah. And start moving Michael's arms and moving his legs and moving him and getting him warmed up to actually get him up and out of the room to walk. I down would not want that out. job. Oh, fuck no. No, I'd be like, don't. <laughs> well, again, see, to them it didn't because he wasn't. To them, he had killed his sister and his father. Outside that, he had been the perfect fucking patient. He's not screaming at night. Yeah. He's not fucking roaring. He's not hurting anybody. When you ask him to do something, he does it. Mm. He's just quiet. He's silent. He's empty. He's just I'd like a sorry blank vessel. I'd if it was a care firm. I you think know, like that, I'd, that's yeah. it, like, you know? So he was, you know, he, he he made regular like medical visits at the time as well. He was, he was even taking part in arts and crafts. And the rest of the time, as you said, he just sat, stared and waited patiently for something. And funny enough, in arts and crafts, it was always paper mache masks he made. Yeah. Mm. It's a thing about oh, Michael sorry. too. He he didn't like the side of his own face. Like he kept his hair long, draping it over his face when he was forced to take off one of his homemade masks. At this point, you may be asking, what the fuck is Michael waiting for? Michael waited 15 years in Smith's Grove, waiting for the doctors and the staff to lose interest. To assume he was mentally gone, catatonic, docile, not a threat to the world around him. And that patience would eventually pay off. But before we get to that, we have to be a little more patient and talk a little more about Dr. Loomis and Edith Myers. The thing about Loomis's firing is it came at the right time for Loomis as well as everybody else. 
The force of Michael's sheer evil aura was proving too much for the aging war veteran. And although he couldn't see it while he was in the middle of it, you know, kind of like being not seeing the trees when you're in the middle of the forest, yeah, you know, yeah. his distance from Michael allowed him to reevaluate the case and his mental health that was associated with it. Between Peter's murder and the incident in the car, Loomis felt like a failure. It had been 15 years and no progress. In fact, all that had been proven over the 15 years was Michael was incapable of any emotion outside of violence. And that he could wait an innumerable amounts of time doing absolutely nothing until you let your guard down. Every time the same result. Michael would stay silent. Time would progress. Michael would be forgotten. Then Michael would attack. Loomis believed now that no real soul resided in the body of Michael Myers and that behind his black eyes were nothing but pure unadulterated evil. Although he had spent eight of the last 15 years trying to treat him, now that he was not his doctor but still his legal guardian, Loomis was determined to ensure Michael never got released from Smith's Grove and was horrified to find out after years of being in a catatonic state, Michael had been downgraded to low risk. A quick quote from Loomis on Michael. I met him 15 years ago. I was told there was nothing left. No reason, no conscience, no understanding in even the most rudimentary sense of love, life and death of good and evil, right or wrong. I met this six-year-old child with this blank, pale, emotionless face and the blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. I spent eight years trying to reach him. And then another seven trying to keep him locked up because I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil. During this, this time, Loomis had stopped visiting Michael as a guardian as well, choosing to purge himself of Michael completely for his own health and sanity. Michael stayed low, low risk for a good three or four years before, in early 1978, another quack decided to take a whack at him. But this time it was a well-respected and senior on-staff doctor at Dr. Webb. Webb had long been a detractor of Loomis's, thinking he was overblowing the Myers situation and that the right treatment just hadn't been discovered yet. So, on September 19th, 1979, Michael was to have another session. The first in many years, and this time Dr. Webb would conduct it himself. He would give it one more shot. He'd try to treat Michael, and if he failed after that, Myers would just get relegated to a doped-out impatient for life. Forgotten about just another wallflower at Smith's Grove. This is how that meeting went. So, this is an incident report from Smith's Grove. About okay. the situation. I'll tell you what happened afterwards from um, Wilbur's own point of view. <laughs> it was a good point of view. Okay. But we'll get there. George Wilbur was alerted. No, sorry, not Wilbur, but at uh, Webb's point of view. George Wilbur was alerted to a scuffle in the room when he heard a loud, repetitive banging noise. Wilbur made entry to the room, immediately taking notice of an unconscious Jesse Webb. Webb was lying face down on a table, bleeding from the nose and snoring. Wilbur alerted the other three guards to the situation, closing in on the scene hastily. Michael Myers himself remained seated, simply staring at Webb's unconscious body with a cocked head and a blank expression. Wilbur drew his baton, eyes trained on Myers as Nicholas Castle positioned himself behind the patient. Castle prepared handcuffs as Wilbur ordered Myers to his feet with verbal commands. Myers was not compliant prompting Richard Warlock to slowly close in on Myers from the left of him. Wilbur persistently ordered Myers to his feet, but to no avail. 
Warlock took Myers by surprise grabbing his left arm and attempting to put the patient on the floor. Myers still staring at Webb rose from his seat. The sudden movement prompted Wilbur to rush towards Myers and attempt to subdue him. Castle rushed Myers from behind placing him in a body lock while Wilbur and Warlock locked onto his arms. Donald Shanks stood by watching out for any signs of struggle. Warlock and Wilbur placed Myers arms behind his back prompting Castle to release the body lock and place the patient in handcuffs. Myers did not resist the process but was stiff and difficult to maneuver. After Myers was secured, Castle attempted escort to, to escort the patient from the room by pushing him to his back. Wilbur and Warlock kept a firm grip of My- Myers' arms, leading him to the exit. Myers walked slowly, not affected by the pressure applied by Castle. Shanks, uh, certain that the situation was under control, attended to Webb, who was beginning to return to consciousness. Webb appeared to be confused, fearful, and uncertain of his surroundings. Webb complained of a blaring noise, which was the sound of the facility's emergency sirens. Approximately two minutes after the Myers had escorted from the room, facility staff, who had not accounted for this report, notified Shanks that they had called an ambulance. Jesse Webb was taken to Haddonfield Memorial Hospital via ambulance. Webb was diagnosed with a severe concussion, a broken nose, and a fractured jaw. Additionally, Webb lost one tooth, which perforated from his upper lip. I got it. (laughs) (laughs) Myers was temporarily placed inside a straitjacket and locked inside his living quarters. Upon review of the tape from Webb and Myers' session, it was concluded the patient was intentionally antagonized by Webb. Webb was placed in a temporary paid leave from Smith's Grove's uh, Warren County Sanitarium. Myers, being a victim of abuse of power, was cleared of any wrongdoing. Myers' actions were cited as self-defense efforts of a mentally disturbed man by Thomas Blight. Thomas Blight was the head, 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 head guy here. Mm, yeah. And this is exactly the same case as his father. Webb went in there with the attitude of, I'm not glad, you know, I, Loomis was good cop, I'm bad cop. I'm not fucking putting up with this bullshit. Mm. You're going to fucking talk to me, Michael. You're going to fucking take responsibility for what you have done. Yeah. And I'm going to make you take responsibility for what you've done. And he kind of started leaning into Michael and getting close to Michael's face and kind of making vague threats, apparently. Okay. It is yeah. kind of what the tape showed. It looked like he would be in a threatening manner talking to him. Okay. So you can only assume he's probably telling Michael stuff like, Oh, you're you're right. Well, I'm going to take your privileges away. You're not going oh, to. Oh yeah, yeah, I'll yeah, take your masks away yeah, from that because that was something yeah. he was very touchy about. Like we said, Michael always, always, like always had the Michael had the mask on unless a superior forced him to take it off. In which case, then the hair just draped over his face. Mm. You know. Yeah. So anyway, Webb got too close, and the footage showed that Michael because that was the thing. Myers was slow. Mm. Myers moved slowly. Yeah. Myers had to be fucking warmed up to go outside. Yeah. But when Myers attacks, it is as quick as a fucking cat. Mm. This guy got too close to Myers, and one second he's whispering in Myers' ears, and next minute his head is being repeatedly smashed into his desk. Over yeah. and over and over and over and over and over again. Yeah. Do you know? Violently. Yeah, yeah. And it was quick. They said, like, they said, like, you could, the, the, obviously, since the 70s, so the video camera footage wouldn't have been the best. Great. They said it would just mm. blur. John just blah 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 his hand moving so quick this incident prompted dr webb to once again contact sam loomis this time hat in hand ready to be the bigger man and admit his failings and foolishness in not heeding sam's warnings 
The two decided then that the only answer to the Michael Myers conundrum was max security for life, or to be put down and destroyed like a vicious, bloodthirsty dog. The law made him decide, made that easy, yeah, yeah. Not an easy decision to make. Yeah. So you're not allowed to fucking kill Michael. No. Put him in max. Lock him up. And from that, the wheels were put in motion to have Myers transferred out of Smith's Grove to a max security prison with a super secure psych ward. Loomis would even deliver him there himself, but before he was to go, Michael had to have one last visitor to Smith's Grove, someone he hadn't seen in over a decade. Edith Myers had come to say goodbye. To find some closure before the last surviving member of her family was locked away in a dungeon never to be heard of again. Mm. Or at least that's what the staff at Smith's Grove thought. Ooh, okay. So Edith came. Very, very similar story here to Peter. Mm. But they have her behind glass. This is more of a kind of like you see in movies where yeah. Michael is at one side of glass, she's the other. Glass, yeah. But obviously instead of the phone, because Michael isn't going to sit there and hold a phone to his face. Do you know what the, the little dots and the, the holes yeah. and the, the, the prospect's glass. And they're talking and she's doing the exact same thing as Peter's doing. And it's why? Why, Michael? Why? Okay. Do you know, give me a yeah. reason. You owe me a reason. You're about to leave. This is it. We're done. This is. I need closure. I need this to be over. And she's constantly getting riled up, and she's getting worse and worse and worse. Mm. So like you know, like we're saying again, Peter was antagonizing him. She wasn't antagonizing him. She was just getting hysterical. Okay. And next thing, she pulled out a gun. Okay. And she starts pointing it at Michael, and she's threatening to fucking shoot. Yeah. And the security come down her as quick as they can, but they're pointing the gun at her now. She's pointing the gun at Michael. They're telling her, you know, put the gun down, put the gun down, yeah, put the gun yeah. down. She took a shot. It's bulletproof fucking glass. So hits her, hits the fucking thing. And ricochets. Ricochets, kind of grazes at kind of one of the cops, out of the security. So they have to take a warning shot at her. Yeah. She takes another shot. They shoot her. She's down. She takes another shot at Ricochet's back and hits her in the chest. So she Ooh. is pretty fucking well bad. And uh, Michael is taken away back to his the cell and yeah. Yeah. ambulance is called for Edith Myers. So um, obviously sometime later she passed away from those injuries. Yeah. But that was her last visit with Michael. She did not think she needed to be locked up. Max, she wanted him gone. She thought he should was... She just thought he was... Yeah, unnatural evil yeah. needed to be purged from this earth now there was no mm-hmm. point in keeping him like you know yeah. so Loomis was the one to give Michael the news once Edith officially passed away on October 29 1978 as expected Michael gave no reaction Myers silent <laughs> it was here Loomis informed Michael of his upcoming transfer the next day and assured him he would come along to help with the transition he then told Michael that once this job was done, he would have to say goodbye permanently. So as to let him live his life while he still could before he became completely corrupted by the evil that was the shape. Loomis said his goodbyes and left, planning to come back for Michael the next evening and hoping to have Myers miles away from Haddonfield before the 31st and the anniversary that haunted his mind so badly. Loomis decided to take Michael by night, avoiding any unnecessary outside contact if at all possible. But as he and Nurse Marion Chambers made their way to Smith's Grove that night to pick Michael up for transfer, mayhem was taking place inside the walls of the hospital. Michael was known for his inhumane strength. 
Farmer Strong, I believe we call it here in Ireland. Mm. Some actually, man for one man. <laughs> oh yeah, there's like this short story about they tested this and they had him picking up like um the uh, kettlebells. Mm. And uh, each time he'd pick it up, no problem. Like the doctor would say there was no arch in his back, there was no struggling, no fear. Mm. And you know, they constantly up and it was, you know, first it was 5kg, 10kg, 20kg, 30kg. But that Michael was, uh, you know, first he dropped them. Okay. And then when the doctor said, okay, don't drop them again, they could do damage. The next time he placed them down gently. And then the third time when he had the heaviest ones, I think they were 30kg, he yeah. was right next to the doctor and he fucking like launched them down like true like dropping them but throwing them at the same time mm. barely missing the doctor like kind of grazing the doctor Christ. and almost fucking injuring him so yeah. like he was strong he knew he was strong oh, yeah. so as the hospital uh, hospital orderlies opened the doors to his cell to prepare him for transfer michael struck and the usually slow tamed animal like i said was moving like speedy gonzalez on meth like i said when this white guy wanted to go he moved he moved quick yeah. michael snapped the first orderly's neck and then smashed the second's face into the wall until there was nothing left but a mangled blood smushed shattered skull remember too this is not max security and michael was perceived to be docile and not directly provoked when not directly provoked as the rest of the hospital staff ran in fear michael moved from cell to cell unlocking each door as he went he then opened the front doors of the building and left them all free to roam the hospital grounds it wasn't long after this that Dr. Loomis and Nurse Chambers arrived at the sanitarium, and there they found every psychiatrist's worst nightmare. The inmates were now free and running the asylum. So, he pulls up. Mm. It's night time, and I, Loomis said he can even remember Nurse Chambers turning him and saying, this is odd, they, they don't usually let him roam free yeah. like this. It's pissing rain, so this they shouldn't odd. go anyway. And there's <laughs> yeah. these guys walking around in pyjamas, to a prison issue yeah. pyjamas, are just walking the grounds of Haddon, of uh, Grove Smith, fucking okay. um, the, the, the campus. Yeah. Now they're still locked in by fencing. Mm. And um, Loomis gets out of the car, runs over to see what's going on, trying to get on the intercom, no one's answering. While this happens, someone, one of the inmates, jumps on top of the car and yeah. starts smashing at the car with nurse chambers inside the car. Like, so this yeah. poor woman, she's freaking out. Here, obviously. And yeah. the window smashes and the hand grabs at her and mm-hmm. tries to pull her out. Yeah. She's freaking out. She's trying to get away from him. Gets to the other side. When she gets to the other side, the hand starts smashing at that fucking window. So she gets the fuck out of the car and starts running. Yeah, runs as fast as she can. Yeah. As soon as she's out of the car, this guy is in the car and drives off. This guy is Michael Audrey Myers. He took off flying on the road, leaving the nurse chambers and Dr. Loomis standing in the mm. pissing rain with these lunatics roaming mm-hmm. free, not knowing what the fuck is going on. But okay. Loomis said before it was even confirmed to him, he knew it was Michael mm. that, had, had, that had escaped that night. Yeah. He was yeah. 100% sure. Certainly. He knew it at this point, this is what Michael had been waiting for. Mm. The opportunity, the chance to get away. Okay. And he knew exactly where Michael was going. He was going to Haddonfield. And on his way to Haddonfield, he committed one more murder, killing an industrial worker named Christopher Hastings and taking to, uh, his great jumpsuit and coveralls, you know, just so he could get rid of his own prison or hospital-issued PJs. Yeah, it's killing me. Like, how the fuck did he learn to drive? He's 21 now, but he's been locked up since he was six years old, right? <laughs> so, like, do they have driver's ed in Smithsgrove? <laughs> Maybe he was paying more attention to Loomis on the birthday trip than all Sam thought. Although mm. they thought he was almost catatonic, Loomis and Quite a few other doctors were convinced Michael was actually a highly intelligent man, but yeah. then again, so was the Unibobber Tank Kaczynski. Yeah. So he probably could have, you know, he could have picked up 
the driving from oh, just yeah. watching Loomis that day. We, I don't know. I, honestly, yeah. who the fuck knows? It's Michael Myers. That's true. No one's broken into that mine yet, so or will ever. So, I mean... In addition to getting the new trades, upon arriving in Haddonfield, Michael broke into a local hardware store, stealing only a butcher knife and a William Shatner mask, <laughs> which he then turned inside out to wear, giving him a blank, ghostly, white expressionless face to cover whatever it was he felt he needed to cover up inside. He also stole the headstone from his sister's grave, which Loomis had found missing when he, he went to go check that headstone just to mm. fucking convince himself 100% that he was right he was hadn't really even though he had found yeah. Michael Myers PJs on the fucking mm. way like you know yeah. so he once he knew that gravestone was there he knew Myers was there okay so this is it then we're finally here yep we're here October 31st 1978 the night Michael Myers came home in 1978, 17-year-old Laurie Strode was a kind-hearted yet introverted girl who attended Haddonfield High School with her friends Annie Brackett and Linda, Van- Linda Vanderklok. So Laurie was shy and bookish and she did not share her friends' overt personalities. She always claimed that her brainy ways kind of scared boys away, which accounted for her sparse dating history. So on October 31st, her father asked Laurie to drop off a set of keys to the old Myers house, which had been on the market for a pretty long time. (laughs) (laughs) What Laurie didn't know was the old Myers house wasn't unoccupied anymore. And as she delivered the keys, as her father had asked, a shape watched her from inside the window. Maybe she resembled Judith in some way. Maybe it was just being the same age. But the shape fixed his gaze on Laurie Strode and the switch that flicked in his head in 1963 that told him he needed to annihilate his whole family flipped again. And now for apparently no reason at all, Laurie Strode and her circle of friends would be his new mission. Targets to rip through, toys to manipulate and play with. People play up like Michael was inhuman, brainless, killing machine. But in reality, that could not be further from the truth. He manipulated and toyed with not just victims, but doctors, judges, psychological experts. He might not have shown much emotion to the outside world, but I promise you the gears in that engine were grinding constantly. He knew what he was doing and he enjoyed it. Even if it wasn't in a conventional, regular way of feeling enjoyment, he 100% took pleasure from his rage. So, I mean, like, once he had locked on and Laurie at this point. Um, and I, I want to get something out of the way before we go any further, okay? Mm-hmm. The events that happen here tonight kind of start sending Dr. Loomis down this strange fucking path. This mm-hmm. really uh, obsessive, fucked up path that we will get into a lot more next week. Okay. And he, he claims at some point that there was another Myers child. Mm-hmm. And that Myers, uh, that Michael was the middle kid, and that there was a baby, and it was a daughter, and that Laurie Strode was, and that was the adopted child and of the Myers family. Okay. Now DNA tests showed later that was false. That's false. But this is information that Loomis had come up with and all this stuff. So anybody that had heard that story before, it's bullshit. Okay. She happened to fucking be a girl around his sister's age who dropped keys at his house, and one of the first teenagers he laid eyes on. When he got Haddonfield, you know, that morning. So, um, so I compared Michael already to being like the Terminator, you know? Yeah. All in mind, he is, look, he he is going to track down his Sarah Connor, you know? So, 
he was locked on Laurie. And Laurie will tell you herself that she continued to see this man throughout the day. Mm. Now, remember, it's Halloween. Yeah. So people are in costume. Mm. And that could be kind of ignored. And she okay. said the first time she noticed him, she said she was in class. And she was, as we do in school when you're a teenager, you're staring out the window. And she knows, she sees this station wagon and there's this man. And all she can see is that he's very pale. And he's staring at the school. Mm. And she, she looks over once, she sees him, she looks away. Obviously, she kind of realizes that very pale. Is he wearing a mask? She looks over again, he's still there. He is wearing a mask, he's still staring. Okay. She pays no attention, yeah. she thinks it's a bit yeah. strange. She Obviously. looks away again and when she looks back in, he's gone. Car's gone, everything's Ooh. gone. Later on that day, she is walking home with her friends, Mm -hmm. Linda and uh, Annie, Mm -hmm. and the same station wagon starts driving up behind them, and Laurie points it out to the girls, it's like, shit, this this guy, you know, I saw him earlier on today, Annie apparently roared out something at him, I can't remember, something about speed kills or something like that, car stopped. And they all kind of stood there, kind of frozen, waiting to see what would happen. And according to Laurie, he just drove on. Then they were walking down the road even further and they got to Linda's house. Linda uh, Linda Clock. Mm -hmm. Every time I hear her name, I just think she's the daughter of the band Deck Clock. (laughs) I can just picture her going home and the five members of Deck Clock being her, like Uh, the five dads. (laughs) But anyway, they, they, they get to her house. She goes off inside and then Laurie looks down and she sees the same guy, white mask, standing there, staring at her. Yeah. She turns to say to Annie and when she looks back, the man's gone again. So she thinks she's fucking losing her mind oh, at this point, yeah. you know? Yeah. But realistically, Michael is following her, like, you know? Okay. And he's the way he's able to move. He's silent. He just zips in and all places. No one can, no one understands how this guy who could spend so fucking long not moving mm. could be so nimble, so quick, so quiet, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, to the point that then she got home herself. And she claimed she was looking out the window and there were sheets blowing in the wind and she swore to fuck that she saw him in those mm. sheets. She said the sheet blew, she saw him when it came back, he was gone. Now, again, we are mind playing tricks in her, you yeah. don't know. You know yourself when you start getting a little paranoid, you start seeing things that aren't really there. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. This guy was there. Whether he was there with the sheets, I don't know, but he was there the rest of the time. And he was watching. Anyway... Like we were talking about earlier, Laurie wasn't exactly the super popular cheerleader type and didn't really have a date for the night. So Halloween night, she was going to be babysitting at Tommy Doyle's house. Meanwhile, Annie Brackett would be babysitting Lindsay Wallace across the street because her boyfriend, um, what's her boyfriend's name again? I can't remember, I think it's Paul. Paul, I think it's Paul, it's Paul. He was grounded <laughs> for egging and uh, ah. fucking toilet paper in a house or something. So, uh, the girl's friend, Linda, was looking for somewhere to hook up with her boyfriend, Bob Sims. And so, the girls agreed that Annie would do Linda a favor and take Lindsay over to Laurie at the Doyle's residence. Yeah, but before that plan could be coming to action, Annie's grounded boyfriend got early release from, the house, from his house arrest. So, Annie was now going to leave Laurie with all the kids and go collect her boyfriend, Paul, and join Linda and Bob for some good old-fashioned Christian fun. Sure. At least, that's what my parents told me the 70s were like. Mm-hmm. Laurie, being the nice, good girl she was known to be, entertained the two kids with pumpkin carving and scary movies. But when time started to pass by and the Wallace home remained in darkness, Laurie began to worry. 
That's when Tommy looked out the window and let out a shriek. The boogeyman, the boogeyman. Laurie, convinced the scary movies and sugar had finally gotten too much for Tommy, ushered him away from the window. Finally, Laurie got through to Linda. But instead of uh, talking, it sounded like Laurie had caught her in mid-coitus as Linda moaned and gasped for breath at the other end of the line. Laurie put up with it, but when Linda went silent and all she could hear on the line was breathing, heavy, deep, muffled breathing, she started to get a bit worried and decided she better call over just to make sure everything's okay, you know, and check everything out. Okay. So remember now, this is the 70s. She's got the two kids to just hang out at home and told them she'll be back in two seconds. She's only going across the road. This is the time when doors were left unlocked overnight. You know, and nothing bad was expected to happen. The two kids just were to stay and watch TV. She was going to go over, check on her friends, make sure everything was okay because something strange was going on. So Laurie head on across, went on across the road. Hmm. When she got into the house, it was, as I said, in darkness. Yeah, yeah. And she was calling... For Annie and for Linda and for Paul and for Bob and no one was answering. Okay. So she's starting to get a little worried. She's getting a bit fucking paranoid. She goes up the stairs. Mm. She heads up the stairs, heads, starts looking through the rooms and she finally gets to the master bedroom. Okay. Where she finds Annie, mm. who she thinks is sleeping. But at the head of Annie's bed is a headstone. The missing headstone of Judith Myers. And when she got closer, she could see that Annie's throat had been slit. And that she was obviously brown brave. And now sitting here is almost like uh, a tribute to the slain sister of Michael Myers. As she turned around, I believe it was Paul or Bob. It was Bob. Bob came swinging on in after being stabbed in the chest by Michael Myers. He was uh, left hanging there upside down in a closet. Uh, They found in the house later on in the investigation, they found a stab wound or a knife wound with a blood pattern. And it was high up. They reckon like it was his blood as well when they checked it out. He was like lifted in the air and stabbed and hung. By the chest from the, from the knife by Myers, yeah, right? Yeah. Then she turned around again, only to find Linda pretty much fucking boxed up into this little closet fucking thing, all smashed mm. up and dead. Yeah. So she panics, she backs up, and she starts to back away. Mm. She said she couldn't see much, it was very dark. But then she noticed it, and out of the darkness, she could see that pale white mask start to form. Mm. and it got closer as it came out of the darkness and towards her so it came towards her slashing at her with a knife managed to kind of just damage her fucking shirt a little bit but knocked Mm. her and she went over the top and you know the way the top of our stairs is we have that kind of as they call it a gallery Mm. and you have uh, the spindles and all that and then you can go down the stairs she kind of fell over the kind of spindles the the banister and spindles of the gallery kind of area and down the stairs she was looking at the fucking break her neck it was a big fall Um, but you know fucking adrenaline is pumping all her friends are dead there's a psychopath after she gets up she gets moving she runs across the road as fast as she can before this guy can get down after her because all Myers moved quick when he wanted to and I took the time this guy just stalked you he walks slowly behind he let you fumble and fall and he'll get you when he's ready you know he'll get you at his pace that's how confident this man was in his ability to get to you and murder you Okay. so she will 
bolts across, gets upstairs, tells the kid they gotta go hide. Gotta go hide. Mm. The boogeyman's coming to get us. Go fucking hide. So the, she locks the kids in one room and she runs into another and gets into a closet. But before she does, she opens up a glass door to a balcony, okay. trying to trick Myers into thinking that she went out over the balcony and uh, to escape. Okay. Again, Myers ain't no dumb dumb. Yeah, of course, yeah. Do you know, as soon as he walked into that room, he ignored the open door and walked mm. straight for the closet. She jammed the closet closed from locked from the inside, so he is banging at it. And this is an oh, this man is unbelievable strength. And this is just an old fucking you know, light wood MDF kind of shit. And he is beaten at that wood, and yeah. he starts knocking it out with the knife and slicing through. And he's getting in there, but he only has the top half broken through. And he's swiping at her and swiping at her. Laurie was quick enough to realize there was hangers there. She grabbed one of the wire hangers undid it as quick as she could and mm. stabbed Myers in the eye blinding oh, yeah. him in one eye for life yeah. Myers only had vision in one eye after this point so he kind of fucking stumbles backwards and drops to the floor okay. Laurie thought she had him dead yeah. she gets the fuck out there runs tells the kids you need to go get out of the house mm. right now yeah. go get help get the police get him back here yeah. Myers is on the ground she thinks dead behind her she's sitting there trying to collect herself the kids run outside first person the kids come across is Loomis. Loomis, for some reason, had clicked that Janelle Myers would be stalking down the street. And he had spent most of the night at the Myers house. Okay. But for some reason, had started making his way down this direction. Yeah. Um, I'll tell you a little more on that as well later. Because there was a lot of incidents that he caused as well in this night that were really fucked up. But we'll get to that. Yeah. Um. Anyway, kids tell him what's going on. He tells the kids to do what Laurie says, go get the cops, and he'll go inside to get Laurie. Okay. He goes upstairs, and as he say, he said, as he went up the stairs, he saw Myers grabbing on to Laurie, coming up behind her again, grabbing on, fucking hanger still in his fucking mm. eye, mm. holding on to her, trying to get a hold of her, and she's trying to fight him off. He was, She was able to push him back long enough by grabbing his mask and pulling at it. Okay. She pulled the mask. It revealed his face. He fucking panics over this again. Because again, can't handle his face being shown for some reason. Okay. As he's trying to put the mask back on, Loomis fucking apparently claims to have left six bullets loose on him. Now, there wasn't six full-on wounds on him when they got him later on, when they captured him again later on. And if he had gotten six bullets, you have to assume he'd die. But he stumbled backwards out the open door for the balcony and off the balcony. And okay. on the floor, Loomis said him, he himself went over, checked, and saw him lying on the ground, in the grass, on the lawn, dead. Okay. No one obviously didn't check his vitals or anything, but he just shot him six times and saw him fall two stories. So, you know, yeah, he was pretty yeah. convinced. Oh, yeah. So, um, you know, Laurie was in a state of shock with that one. So, Laurie genuinely asked Loomis, in her state of shock, was that the boogeyman? Now, Loomis replied... I do believe it was. I should tell you again how much of a problem Loomis mm. was in this case oh, as well. Yeah. I think, like, once he lost faith in fucking in Michael, Loomis was known for the dramatics. Yeah, yeah. He, he go overboard with this shit a little bit, yeah. like, you know? Yeah. Anyway, Loomis went to do just, again, confirm for himself. Now, maybe, again, I'm about to prove myself wrong here and him right. <laughs> because he does go, again, to confirm that Michael is dead. And when he looks out over the balcony again... Myers is missing. Gone. This fucker has gotten up again and walked off. Now, what I didn't mention early on was any 
bracket mm. who was left laying in the bed with, at the head, with the headstone was the daughter of Sheriff Lee Brackett, who oh, was shit. out on the case looking for Myers at the time. That's awful. So, yeah, he obviously had to come upon his daughter's okay. murder scene. Mm-hmm. Um, he left. This, after that body was found, he did go home to his wife and, you know, he oh, yeah, obviously, yeah, obviously off to agree. But yeah. the rest of the cops were on full alert and there was an entire sweep. They knew he was in the general area. He couldn't have went far. He was shot six fucking times, stabbed in the eye, so he's blind in one eye. Mm. We know he's around this area somewhere. We're just not sure where. Okay. Now, he fled around the back alleys of Haddonfield. He killed another teenager by the name of Alice Martin inside her own house. And then he broke into an elementary school, a school and scrolled the word sowing into a chalkboard in blood. That okay. is sowing, America. Not sowing. Not Samhain. Sowing. <laughs> November in Irish. Sowing. That is what it is. As news of the murder spread, chaos erupted in Haddonfield with citizens rioting and teenager Bennett Tamer, Tramer being killed in the confusion. So that's what I was talking about earlier on. Mm-hmm. Loomis was fucking frantic. Mm. He's running around with the cops and he is telling them what to do. Like, yeah, you know? yeah. And a kid who just happened to be wearing the William Shatner mask, the mm. right way around, and overalls. Yeah. For whatever reason, they just happened to match his wild coincidence. Mm. Was walking on the road and Joe, he didn't pay any attention to the fucking colour of the face. He just fucking started screaming, there's Michael, there's Michael, there's Michael, started yeah, taking yeah. shots. The kid ended up getting plowed by a car and went on fire and Shit. died. This innocent kid who was yeah. old, older kid, he was about 13, 14, he was tall, he was out trick or treating and he, yeah, so, and that was fucking solely Loomis's fault for being fanatical oh, yeah. when yeah. he saw something that he thought Genuinely, was Michael yeah. Myers like, you know? So, uh, as this was all going on, this chaos was going on, Two deputies were told uh, to say close within the proximity of the Myers house. And that was Deputy uh, Higgins and uh, Deputy Pete McCabe. Um, so they are walking around the back streets talking shit. Because again, they had actually been in school when Myers was in school. When the murders had happened. Oh, so, yeah. you know, this was pretty close to home for them. This was only... 15 years ago. Course, so yeah. these guys were teenagers when this happened. Yeah. They're talking about the original situation. Oh, it's crazy. He's back. They're looking for him. It's like, oh, do you really think you got shot six times? Mm-hmm. And they notice blood splatter. Okay. And they start to follow this trail and it leads them right back to the Myers house. Mm-hmm. And they head right inside. Um, So they walk around the house. They do a bit of a sweep. Seems like it's empty. Everything's mm-hmm. cool. Yeah. No sign of Michael. And then they go up into the room. Just morbid curiosity. Wait, you know your way. You, I would course, do the exact probably, same thing about yeah. tomorrow house. I would go to the room where it happened to have mm-hmm. a look. Mm-hmm. And that's what they did. And, um, you know, I think it was McCabe was saying to Haskins. It was like, you know, I remember, like, John Michael as a kid would used to just, like, because I lived in this neighborhood. He used to just stare out this window. I wonder what he was staring at. Yeah, yeah. As he said that, Michael, quick as a flash, came out of fucking nowhere. Mm from the side and starts bashing this guy's head in again and stabbing him and stuff and he pulls him in front of I think it was Haskins was his name yeah yeah. and 
Haskins can't get the shot off and Michael has this guy in front of him using him as a human shield and then finally Haskins goes to take shot at the shot and shoots his partner in the neck. Michael drops him and is just gone again like a fucking flash like gone. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Haskins was over to try and give first aid to his, his partner McCabe. Mm-hmm. Michael starts walking off down the stairs. Bye bye. At this stage, the entire police force of Haddonfield are outside waiting for guns drawn on the house. Michael walked out, stood there, and Loomis walked up behind him to take a shot. And one of the deputies grabbed his arm, pulled him away, and they were like, Oh, we need to destroy him now. We need to destroy him now. But they instead. Just like he was when he was in the hospital. Do you know when I said mm-hmm. like you know, there's times where he'd be difficult, but once it was time to be arrested, he would allow them to arrest him and take him. Mm. That was it. He had done what he was had decided he could get done that night. Now it was time to just go home. Yeah. They they had him. So yeah. he gave up and he walked and they yeah. took him right fucking back. He was rearrested and taken to maximum security psych prison. Do you know? Well, psycho hospital in a in a prison. Okay. Where he remained again patiently, emotionlessly, and apparently empty for 40 more years, once again docile to the untrained eye. Mm. But deep down, it ate at him. The one that got away. The one that took his eye. So he would sit and he would wait. Once again, play the quacks for fools and eventually he'd get his prize. He'd once again try to fill the hole that seemed to go deeper and deeper by the day. 40 years he waited to get his revenge on Haddonfield and Laurie Strode. Hey, you. Yeah, you. You like the podcast? Want some more? Then head on over to our Patreon page where for just five euro a month you get up to 12 extra shows in that month. Along with piles of mini-sodes covering fun facts from the world of horror and true crime. Each week we drop multiple shows such as Real Monsters where we look at the inspiration behind the movie killers or Behind the Mask where we take a look at the influential people and happenings in the world of Hollywood. All this plus movie reviews, watch-alongs and regular AMAs. That means ask me anything. You really do get a bang for your buck. And, and by bang I mean like podcast. I'm not soliciting or anything. Shit. Um, moving on. For just five euro a month, all this could be yours. So head on over to www.patreon.com forward slash IAA pod. That's www.patreon.com forward slash IAA pod and start listening now. Ready to go again? Just about. With more boogeyman stuff. I never <laughs> had the boogeyman grow up. No? No, never really believed him, never did nothing for me. I, I, me. I, I, no, I was always afraid of stuff in the dark. Do you know how we were talking about um, in the mini show last Saturday? It was last Saturday? Yeah, yeah, the Shadow People. Mm. Uh, I would have been afraid of that growing up. Oh, Shadow People scared me. With the but in my head, that's what I would have seen. What I see in those dreams and those nightmares coming mm. from me will be what I would have thought was under the bed or in the okay. closet or behind the dark door. You know, if there was a door that was slightly open and yeah, stuff yeah. like that. And I'd be, yeah. I used to be really paranoid of all that kind of stuff. I'd, be, I'd check everywhere before I go to bed. Yeah, but you see the way I check the house before I go to bed. Oh sure. my god, the back door ten out. times and like, and I'm waiting to go and I'm at the bottom of the stairs and I'm going to just hurry up. I've seen him check it twice already. <laughs> fucking Laurie Strode <laughs> fucking style, that. <laughs> ten locks at our door. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to get to that next week. <laughs> because this week 
I like okay, right. Okay. Before I get well into it, right, I will admit I do have some corrections to make from mm-hmm. last week's story. Mm-hmm. But I got I got one or two little details wrong in the ending. But I'm gonna leave that till the end of the episode to correct I as a better? little teaser for next okay. week. So last week we left off in Haddonfield on Halloween of nineteen seventy-eight after Michael's recapture and arrest. And like I said last week, for the next forty years, Michael went back into sleep mode, and there's a whole pile of nothing to talk about when it comes to the shape for four decades. But the world outside the sanitarium walls kept turning, even if Michael didn't. Mm. Yes, the real Michael Myers stayed locked up and quiet from 78 to 2018, but his inspiration lived on through urban legends, cults, and copycats, and that's what we'll look at this week. So yeah, if you tuned in to hear the rest of Myers' legitimate, for lack of a better word, canon story, then I'm afraid you're shit out of luck. Now this week, it's all silver shamrock masks, the cult of Thorn, Michael's possible robotic origins, and mystical druidic powers. So I'm kind of pulling a soap pack on you. Like the time they had the cliffhanger to see mm. who Cartman's dad was, and the next week there, the Terrence and Philip special yeah. instead of the conclusion to the cliffhanger story. Turns out his mom was his dad, hermaphrodite. Then later, it turned out that was a line that it was actually Scott Tenorman's dad. It's a whole big thing. We don't got time to get into it this week, okay? We'll cover it on that. On that. <laughs> We got enough wacky shit to get through this week when it comes to Michael's story before we get back to the true story next week in part three. See it as a little palate cleanser. Last week was a lot of medical reports, transcripts, stalking and killing, and we'll have a lot more of that next week again. So we're going to break it up with some stories inspired by the boogeyman, the shape, the monster known as Michael Audrey Myers. I suppose first things first, before we get into Michael Laurie and Dr. Loomis, who will feature in this episode, we'll start with a little urban legend, straight from the small town of Santa Mira, California, the location of a large Irish community and the Silver Shamrock Novelties Factory. After World War II in the rural town of Santa Mira, wealthy Irishman Conal Cochran had invigorated the town by establishing the toy factory the largest manufacturer and purveyor of Halloween masks in the world. You know, uh, lately on AEW, Dan Housen's had that promo, the very evil, very nice, very nice, very nice, very evil, very nice. Uh, (laughs) That's basically, that was the Silver Shamrock uh, ad that comes from the urban legend. It's attached to the urban legend. Oh, yeah. yeah. And basically, when they were selling these masks, they used to run this ad. Mm. And, um, He'd sponsor um, a Halloween marathon, movie marathon on mm-hmm. Halloween night. But to build up to it, the masks would run adverts every day. So on the way up, Joe would be like, eight more days till Halloween, uh-huh. Halloween, Halloween, <laughs> eight more days yeah. till Halloween, silver shamrock. Okay. And it's happening every day until the build up to Halloween. And we'll get into why that's important. Want to get into the scandal now? No, 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 not yet. I want to do okay. the legend first. Just to get all the wackiness out of the way before we actually explain what happened. Okay. So these masks were super popular at the time. I believe they glowed in the dark, which would have been cool, a cool novelty in the 80s. In the late 80s, 80s, early 90s, if they could make it glow or go 3D with red and cardboard and, and, and green cardboard glasses, it was happening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those glasses were shit. Mine were like all broken with an hour, like sweat would just make them disintegrate. Oh, they're gone. It's like the, the paper straws now. <laughs> so the legend goes that Conal Cochran had mastered robotics. 
like beyond what even we have. Think Blade Runner level replicants, but with the personality of Michael Myers. The legend says the town of Santa Mira was only populated by factory workers and, well, robot slaves or goons of Cochrane's. And there's the first totem story. There's no way an Irish man is going to name his new company community Santa Mira. Yeah, it'd be more like Bally McMary or Bally something McMary. like that. <laughs> <laughs> so how, you may ask, does an old Irish war veteran gain this kind of knowledge decades before its time? And just about to ask, took the words right out of my mouth. Why, good old-fashioned Celtic Druid magic, of course. Ah, yeah. Sure, we all learned that over here. It's part of the curriculum. Ancient robot magic. (laughs) (laughs) Giving my pagan people a bad name again. First, the whole storm of the capital thing. Then summarizing all this. My whole belief system is going to need a PR firm by the time this is all over with. Anyway, back to Cochrane. What's the point in having this awesome mystical power unless you're going to use it? And I'm sure being a good, upstanding Irishman, he shared his knowledge with the world... And now we live in a utopia where robots do everything and we can just sit back and become irrelevant. No, that was Musk, Bezos and Zuckerberg, I think. Norman Cochran was old school and instead he made Halloween masks with robotic tags on them that will be triggered by the Silver Shamrock TV advert on Halloween night. Rumor has it Cochran was mixing ancient druid magic with modern science and had robot scientists working round the clock to perfect the signal that would tap into the mystical Celtic ruin symbol of Thorn. More on that really soon. The tr- and trigger the tags on the mask, causing the kids to murder their parents before dying themselves. Want to tell them what really happened? Yes. So everything Josh said up until the word scandal was true. Colonel Cochran was a World War II veteran who did reinvigorate the town of Santa Mira by establishing the toy factory and the largest manufacturer of Halloween masks in the world, Silver Shamrock Toys and Novelties. He provided work to countless Irish immigrants trying to make their way and find their American dream and did a lot of good for his company community of Santa Mira. Thing was, in the 1980s, more competition started to hit the market and with the advent of cable television, now Cochrane didn't just have the local competitors, but national ones too, with mail order advertising becoming more prevalent at the time. So Cochrane was feeling the heat and in order to cut costs and to keep the factory doors open, he started to cheap out on manufacturing material, causing an unapproved substance to get mixed with what was usually 100% latex masks. The substance caused the children that wore them to break out in terrible rashes and in some instances become very sick, even causing the death of one child, Buddy Kupfer Jr. Am I saying that right, Kupfer? I think so. Yeah. yeah so he acquired his mask on, on the house and directly from Cocker himself when his father was a toy store owner called to pick uh, up his Halloween shipment. Yeah, Cochrane wasn't happy. It broke his heart that he'd made, you know, that he had caused the suffering to of another child. His target audience, his life's influence for decades. Some say it was an accident. Some say it was suicide. But on the night of October 31st, 1982, around 11pm, the Silver Shamrock factory burned to the ground. Cochrane, its sole occupant at the time. It would not be rebuilt and it would never open its doors again. The town of Santa Mira became a ghost town within months with the community of workers moving on to search for new employment. Now, you might be asking yourself, what the fuck does that have to do with Michael Myers? Because I know 
high definitely was. <laughs> well, at this point, it's a pick your own adventure because we got two big stories to tell here and one little theory to talk about. I ain't got to lead in with this theory because it directly answers your question about. Mm. Then we'll look at the Cult of Thorn and Loomis before we jump over to 1998 and the copycat killer that struck in California to mark the 20th anniversary of the Haddon Massacre of 1978. Cool. So how does Conal Cochran and Silver Shamrock Masks tie into this story? This story about a kid who's obsessed with masks, then on Halloween night 1963, puts on a clown mask and murders his sister before becoming totally catatonic. Which was a few decades after the legendary Cochrane attack, so that couldn't be it. Unless Michael was an early test subject and had an early prototype mask. He started his mission correctly that night, but something went wrong and Michael's brain fried before he could eliminate the rest of his family. But still keeping that urge buried deep inside him, only feeling satisfied at the death of his mother and total annihilation of the Myers family. Maybe it only worked a little and the real Myers is still buried deep down inside. Maybe this was just the first attempt at the real life boogeyman. Maybe Myers was just a mistake. But who made that mistake? I know I said today we'd look at the years of 1978 to 2018, and we will in most cases. But when it comes to Laurie Strode and what she was up to throughout this time, I'd rather keep that backstory for next week's episode. It ties in better with the overall Mm. Myers arc. Yeah. All you need to know is that Laurie was left with severe PTSD with one daughter and two failed marriages under her belt. Laurie went full Sarah Connor doomsday prepper and had set up a like a malicious style compound full of traps, locks and a well-stocked panic room. Laurie, like Loomis, had seen Michael that night in 78. And I mean, like, really saw him. Mm. Mask off, yeah. eye to eye. She understood the danger Loomis was constantly preaching about. She knew that behind the mask was a feral, emotionless animal who would stop at nothing to achieve his goal. Yeah. It was for that reason she was convinced Michael would return to Haddonfield again and spent the rest of her life prepping and waiting, waiting for the day he came home. Patient, anxious, anticipation. Like a mirror of the man she hated so much who did the same only a few miles away in Smith's Grove. So after his capture in 1978, Michael was initially moved out of Haddonfield by orders of Dr. Loomis into a more secure sanitarium. He stayed there until Loomis's death in 1996. And then he was moved back to Haddonfield by a student of Loomis and Michael's new main doctor at Ranbir Sartain. So Sartain argued that after years of absolutely no progress with Michael, that maybe the familiar backdrop of Smith's Grove and Haddonfield would get him feeling a bit nostalgic and that he might finally open up. Plus, Smith's Grove had kind of been upgraded to a max security sanitarium for the criminally insane over the years. So it was perfectly suitable and more than equipped to deal with the patients uh, with the patients of Michael's caliber. So Dr. Sartain had a good reputation and a proven track record of success with some very difficult patients. So it was decided again due to how docile he had again become and an age and all injuries from 1978 into the mix that Michael Myers would be perfectly safe to return to Haddonfield to see out the end of his days in strict confinement and under constant medical study. Doctors were obsessed with him. Everyone in the field that was worth the damn had a crack at Michael Myers. No one outside of Loomis ever got more than two words out of the man, but I suppose more on that next week. Why the fuck, in your right mind, would anybody think it was a good idea to bring him back to Haddonfield? I, I know they wanted to study him and think they'd crack him or something, but it just seems like 
after the history there, you're just better off to keep him away. The people who had him feel aren't going to be happy he's there. No. I mean, I, I, I just think maybe we shouldn't have been listening to the stuff that. I think Happy not one of those professionals involved in those cases were well trained at all in any way. Loomis, I give, I, I didn't give him enough credit last week. Loomis did a lot, a lot of work here, and we'll be kind of getting into that as we go along. Uh, because while Laurie was prepping, and while Michael was laying out in the psychiatrist's couch talking about his feelings with Sartain, mm. Loomis was left busy in Haddonfield. Michael had become something of an icon in the 1978 attacks, and icons attract fans, fan fanatic, fanatic fans, over the top psycho stalker fans, cult starting fans, and apparently that's what happened in 1988 when Dr. Terence Wine, the chief administrator of Smith's Grove Sanitarium, began to build a little following that he called the Cult of Thorn. Now, again, we already talked about this a little bit mm-hmm. because it also links up with our urban legend from before. Yep. And I'll talk about that a little later more again. Wiley's follower, followers believed Michael Myers was only a vessel, a host body for an evil ancient, an ancient entity known as Thorn, named after a constellation of stars that can be typically seen best on October 31st. The constellation was supposed to hold a dark curse known as the Curse of Thorn. Want to tell them about it? So the Curse of Thorn is a mystical runic symbol based on a namesake constellation Thorn that could appear during the ancient feast called Samhain, the holiday also known as All Hallows Eve or simply Halloween. To prevent mass death among tribes, one family was chosen to bear the curse. This curse would require the bearer to sacrificially murder his or her entire family, which would in turn spare the entire community from events such as plague and drought. The curse also appears to give the cursed inhuman strength and immunity from death. The curse of porn is placed on a child by a leader of the porn cult. It commands the child to kill his entire family as a blood sacrifice to keep the cult alive. It also makes that child able to withstand serious injuries that would result in death for any normal human being. It turns the child into pure evil. <laughs> Loomis must uh, love that. Major <laughs> hold on Wine's pro- uh, plans. Michael didn't stop after his family, so that would mean the curse didn't work, right? Or, and hear me out, maybe it's all just bullshit. Michael's a bit crazy. <laughs> and Wine's a bit fucking crazy by the sounds of things. Mm-hmm. And you know what? I've seen this... Um, rune i didn't really know what it was attached to but i have seen this rune on stone you know, some rune yeah. stones that i have yeah so it is it is out there I, I meant to look it up a bit more before i did this but after i read about the curse of thorn i kind of just kept kind of going down that rabbit hole for a while <laughs> and that left me forgetting to do what i was supposed to do either way wine and his followers firmly believed the myth and the repercussions of the curse and not appeasing the evil god thorn not much is known about this cult only what Dr. Loomis has shared with us in his book, The Devil's Eyes and The Devil's Eye or The Devil Walks Among Us. He claims that Wine convinced his followers that Michael was still in Smith's Grove under his care and supervision, hidden from the world so as to protect the spirit of Thorn. And as you said, Wine believed Michael was only a vessel. He believed through druid magic, he could move that entity from Michael to another child. Laurie Strode actually had her first child around this time. Her name was Karen Strode. 
Wine used this information and her exclusivity at the time to fabricate a story using another troubled child by the name of Jamie Lloyd as Strode's surrogate child. In fact, he didn't stop there. Wine followed his, he told his followers that Michael targeted Laurie to begin with because he was her younger sister and a baby at the time of the murders. Now, this was brought up as well because when Michael broke out of the sanitarium the first time, mm. the first thing he had actually written on the walls in blood before he left was sister. So that's how that rumor got started as well. He okay. was referring to Judith. Yeah. But yeah. people thought he was, you know, because that got out there mm. and obviously urban legends, the way they get started, it was like he was after his sister. So he must have, Laurie Strode must have been his sister. Okay. Laurie Strode, DNA tests were even done. Laurie Strode is a Strode. And not, not his sister. No. No, and so Wine was using this information, and again, like I said, the reclusivity, and he kind of, like, he faked this uh, Laurie Strode death situation. He said she'd been in a car accident. He spread this rumor she'd been in a car accident. Laurie Mm. was seen so little at the time that people would believe it, you know? Yeah, yeah. So at the time, there was this troubled child who was in foster care. She was orphaned, and she was in foster care. Her name was Jamie Lloyd. Mm-hmm. Now, Jamie was also under the care of Dr. Loomis, and it was for a specific reason. It's because she also stabbed her foster mother while wearing a clown costume. Oh. So there was a lot of similarities yeah. to yeah. the Michael case. Now, again, it was her foster mother. She didn't kill her, mm-hmm. and she did stab her, and she ended up in care for a good few years after that. But obviously, Wine took that to be a sign of the next you know, like the Antichrist is yeah. here, the next Myers yeah. is here for us, you know? Yeah. So he spun that with his followers. So, uh, I mean, obviously, you know, a lot of cult, either bullshit as usual, you know, just trying to... I mean, like, again, he was telling them that Michael was in the sanitarium mm. and mm. under his control. The only reason that the public didn't know is because there'd be outrage. He was in an underground special cell you know where yeah, he would be yeah. taken care of and recuperated until he would next rise for the curse of thorns mm, you know yeah and then he led him to believe that this child jamie was actually the child of laurie strode now i'm sure if laurie had known at the time she would have came out and no. you know said yeah, no yeah, i had no but it was kind of something that was swept under it was kind of something that was kept within this little cult you know okay yeah so he would regularly send uh his followers out like every night not regularly not every halloween but every couple of halloweens mm. he would send his followers out in these myers costumes in the shatner mask in the overalls and have them stand and kind of stalk the, the strode the, the remaining strode family or the uh lloyd family or mm. the family taking care of jamie lloyd oh okay and, and yeah. follow jamie lloyd yeah. basically like what scientologists do when they when a scientologist leaves they were doing this to these two families Aye. for years. So obviously more rumors would start about you know, oh, Michael Myers back around the place. So like mm. you have all these stories of Myers turning up yeah. throughout the 90s and stuff like that when it was usually one of these actors. Mm. It's like when oh, it was like the the time when it was coming out and we had that situation where clowns, clowns. were seen everywhere. Yeah. But this was them. Now, we, again, this links us right back around to our urban legend as well with the Silver Shamrock Mask. Right, mm-hmm. because another belief is that he wasn't using his followers; he was using robots that he had acquired from our good friend 
Yeah, Catherine. Okay. <laughs> and uh, that these were Moira's drones, kind of uh, cyborg drones. Yeah. And uh, that they were going out to do his bidding. Because that's the thing about it. Although we don't know a whole part about what's going on here, there was a few like suspicious deaths mm. around the area, around just sporadically over the nineties and kind of late eighties, early nineties. Yeah. That are kind of attributed to this cult, but can't be proven because it's very hard to find who was in the cult to begin with. You know? Okay. No, yeah. apparently there is a tattoo of the 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 rune that a lot of them will have. That they but, have a yeah. But again. A lot of the people who were involved with this cult were missing from Haddonfield once the cult kind of expired itself. Mm -hmm. And we will get Mm -hmm. to that too. Because just like every other cult leader, he could not follow through in his promises. Do you want to tell him what happened, Amy? Yep. So it's believed around 1995, the group grew disillusioned by wine and the lack of results from his promises. And that one member came across Michael's files, discovering the truth about his whereabouts and Wine's lack of interaction with him. This proved to be the final straw, and on Halloween night of 1995, Wine was found by Dr. Loomis dead in Smithsgrove Sanitarium's basement, surrounded by Celtic Druid symbols on a makeshift altar in his cult robes and a Michael Myers mask, having been sacrificially stabbed to death by his own followers for his deception. Again, we're about to get into this little bit here. About, uh, so, I'll say it for us, no one was ever charged in connection with Wine's death. And not long after the passing of Dr. Loomis and of Wine, Michael was returned to Smith's Grove to continue his care under Dr. Sertan and would remain there dormant for another 22 years. There's just been a confirmed cult there. Why would you bring him back? I know, eh? Uh, Do you know? Stupid. It's like these people left because they found out he wasn't there anymore. And now you think, you know, do you know what? Now that they're gone, now we will bring You're all bait and switch. <laughs> so we're going to switch over now and get away from the mystical shit for a little bit. Uh-huh. And we're going to talk about some actual true crime. Because in 1998, to mark the 20th anniversary of the Haddonfield Babysitter Massacre... Escaped mental patient Harold Trumbull donned the Myers-inspired mask and overalls and went on a killing spree in Illinois and California. Trumbull, a diehard serial killer trivia expert, was Michael's number one fanboy. And after a confusion on some release forms, found himself released from Smithsgrove Sanitarium earlier than expected. And with all the talk of Michael in Smithsgrove, especially now with him back in the sanitarium, Trumbull felt it was up to him to take over where his idol had left off. Trumbull started his killing spree in Illinois, stabbing to death long-time nurse and close friend of Loomis, Marion Marion Winnington. I think this is the lady that was in the car with him when Michael Mm -hmm. first escaped. Mm -hmm. Along with two teens, Jimmy Jimmy Howdell and Tony Algar, who happened to be playing hockey outside her house at the time of Trumbull's arrival. It's believed he was looking for Loomis's old case files, which Marion had inherited on his death. So he wanted to be exactly like Michael and planned to study these files to get the MO down to a T. Yeah, and with the heat on, Trumbull moved his massacre from Illinois to California, tagging on a woman who I have to say is Laurie Strode's doppelganger. They could have been sisters, to be fair. Yeah, Trumbull definitely spent time picking her out and the resemblance was uncanny. It couldn't have been a coincidence. Either way, 
Kerry Tate and her son John lived on the grounds of Hillcrest Academy, a private boarding school in Summer Glen, California. Over the Halloween weekend of 1998, Trumbull murdered, in addition to the Illinois killings, Charles DeVore, Sarah Wainthorpe, and Will Brennan, along with seriously assaulting Molly Cartwell, Kerry, and John Tate. Trumbull's reign of terror ended when Kerry got the better of her attacker, pinning him to a tree with her car and taking his head off with an axe. Oh, overkill. Yeah, Kerry ended up in mental care the rest of her life after experiencing this, dying three years later of an unknown illness. You have to remember, it's the 20th anniversary. Interest has peaked again. Books, movies, documentaries, the media was littered with Michael Myers. Even so much so that it inspired a terrible, cheap and insulting reality TV show where contestants had to spend the night in the heavily cameraed Myers house in Haddonfield on Halloween. Over the night, a fake Myers picked off contestants one by one, and in the end it turned out to be a mockumentary-style fake reality TV horror special hosted by Buster Rhymes and Tyra Banks. Buster beat up the fake Myers in the end, in the end saving the day, electrocuting him. I mean, these were yeah. cheesy, cheap, shitty fucking like, fireworks going off uh-huh. and all that stuff. It was dumb and not well received by the Strode family or any of the people of Haddonfield, to be honest. Yeah, and I can understand why. Did you watch it? It was like a web series. I, I watched don't it think in pre- preparation for this, and I mean, Buster Rhymes is over. I heard about top. it. It's ridiculous. And mm. um, I wouldn't mind the Michael Myers had they they got a terrible costume for it. <laughs> yeah, terrible costume. <laughs> it looked like it came off witch. I need to see it. <laughs> so as I said at the start of the episode, I made a few mistakes last week. Mm. This was primarily with the ending and Michael's capture, which I'll redo here in just a minute. Okay. But first, I have to apologize for muddying the good name of Doctor Sam Loomis. Going off the urban legends of Michael and the cult of Thorn, the research would lead you to believe he was a raving lunatic obsessed with Michael. Mm. Realistically, he was a man who knew evil when he saw it, and he was determined to make his life's work to ensure Michael remained in prison for the rest of his natural life. There is nothing natural about Michael's life. (laughs) Either way, outside of his time studying Michael, he had to keep tabs on Dr. Wine, who he, who he had been suspicious of for quite a, some time. And he was helping to protect and treat the misfortunate Laurie Strode standing in Jamie Lloyd. So a good man overall, just a little tunnel vision in his life's work and Michael. So the ending, how did you fuck that up last week? Well, it wasn't a big fuck up. It's just little details yeah. that are kind of interesting. And okay. uh, something that I kind of passed over as well. And okay. that's how he surrendered. So last week, I spoke of how Deputy Frank Hawkins and Pete McCabe had Michael back into the old Myers house, and they were doing a sweep of the grounds to try and find him. What I missed was Mm. that McCabe was actually a sort of childhood friend of Michael's. His mother used to send him there on playdates with the silent child out of pity, and McCabe apparently was reminiscing about how... Michael used to just spend all his time throughout these playdates just standing at his sister's window, staring out the window and into the abyss. Hmm. It was as he recalled this memory aloud for Hawkins, who was searching a different room, that Michael struck and, like I said last week, he moved with the speed of a predator just waiting to strike. He began to strangle McCabe with some rope. Hawkins then entered the room, shooting McCabe through the neck by mistake, killing him in an attempt to save him from Myers. Then, just as he did in 1978, Michael walked from the room, 
down the stairs and stood in the exact same spot he had all those years beforehand as a deranged six-year-old, mm-hmm. waiting for his parents and the police to come and take him away, just replacing his parents with Loomis this time. It completely passed me over the, you know, the, the actual yeah. meaning behind him walking out after me. Mm-hmm. I mean, that must have been like him reliving the sister's murder, killing McCabe. And then strolling outside, right down those same stairs, right out the same door, right down the same path, stopping at the exact same point exactly. to be taken back into yeah, custody, yeah, like you know. Yeah. So, um, yeah, the court listened to Loomis's recommendation for what should be done with Michael before deciding he was still classified insane and sent back to a sanitarium. Mm. Loomis had recommended the death penalty, saying, "My suggestion is termination." Death is the only solution for Michael. There's nothing to be gained from keeping evil alive. And he was right. Because 22 years later, the shape would come home again. Loomis again left down by one of his Smithsgrove colleagues. This time though, Michael knew time was running out for him. So he would hit the berserker mode button hard and go on a killing spree. Unlike anything seen in modern history to this day. Okay, it's honesty time. We have a confession to make. We suck at socials! No good at Insta! Can't send a tweet, or an X, or whatever that supervillain looking motherfucker is calling it now. Stick to your space cars, Elon! But we know, you wanna chat. You wanna be kept updated. You wanna be alive alive all the goddamn time. So we're getting down from the anti-social soapbox and giving this a try. So come chat to us on Insta and Twitter at Alive Alive Pod or hit us up by email at itsalivealivepod at gmail.com. We want to hear from you. Tell us what you like, what you don't like. This is a project. It's still a work in progress and we just want to give you more of what you like and less of what you can't stand. So give us a like, give us a follow. We'll always hit you back and we'll always try to reply to everyone. So come say hi. We don't bite. Well... At least Amy doesn't. And she keeps me well fed, so you got nothing to worry about. Now, back to the show! <laughs> when we last left Haddonfield two weeks ago, Michael Myers had just been apprehended. Ten bodies left in his wake, eight of which had been the product of the previous few hours of work Michael had undertaken since his escape. The other two being his sister Judith and his father Peter, both of which he murdered in the 60s before even hitting puberty. Now, last week we told you all about the urban legends, cults and copycats of the shape Michael Myers, and to be fair, we had a lot of fun with it, even if by the end of the story us Irish weren't looking so hot. But that was all make-believe, silly stories and campfire tales used to scare children at bedtime. Well, the Irish stuff was anyway. The cult and the copycat killers, they were real and caused a fair bit of pain and suffering to a good number of people. But we don't care about that anymore. That's not what you came here to hear last week, and it's certainly not what you're here to hear this week. I think we've kept you hanging long enough, and it's time to look at what Michael Myers was doing with all his free time in Smith's Grove Sanitarium from 1978 to 2018. 1978 was a launching pad of a media storm. Myers was unlike anything that had come before him we're talking about the golden age of the serial killer the babysitter massacre of 78 was already in the wake of the zodiac killer the son of sam henry lee lucas otis tool and during the reigns of bundy gacy the golden state killer btk and jeffrey dahmer yet all eyes were on the freak the shape the boogeyman michael audrey myers Loomis had given up hope on rehabilitation and as you said, this was the golden age of the serial killer in American media. 
people were and still are obsessed with psychopaths. Lucky for us. But that's not what Loomis wanted. Loomis had learned from years of mistakes and study. He knew Michael's ability to corrupt and manipulate without uttering so much as a word. His original recommendation to the courts was that Michael be destroyed. Put to death, his evil spirit banished from this world, never to harm an innocent soul again. But Michael had long been deemed insane by the courts, so he couldn't be held accountable for his actions. It was the incompetence of the sanitarium, prison guards and staff that led to Michael's escape. The courts argued that blaming Michael for his killing spree would be like holding an escaped lion from the zoo accountable for what it naturally does in the wild. And so it was decided, Michael would again be put back into maximum security sanitarium for the criminally insane. But this time he would be taken away to an undisclosed location so as to minimize his impact on pop pop culture and the serial killer fanboys. America had enough problems when it came to serial and mass murder. Having an animal like the shape on the field would be a game changer. The less people who knew about the pure evil that resided within Michael, the better. So although the recommendation of death from Loomis was rejected by the courts, they did agree he would be the best man to watch over and study him. They also agreed he needed to be stashed far away from Haddonfield and Laurie Strode, who was, to say the least, dealing with enough shit. Yeah, needless to say, Laurie did not come out of the 1978 event unscathed. All her friends were dead and an encounter with the living embodiment that a boogeyman had left her suffering from pretty intense PTSD. Every time I read a line where all her all her friends are dead, I just go straight into it. Is it Turbo Negro that do that song? All my friends are dead. (laughs) PTSD that was not fully understood at that point in time, leading to Laurie slipping through the cracks in the system, turning to alcohol and prescription drug use to deal with her feelings of utter fear and despair. I wish I hadn't put a joke in the middle of that. That, that, that. (laughs) Pretty serious. It must have been tough on her. I mean, like you just said, she saw this man as the living, breeding boogeyman. Or I just said that, didn't I? Yeah. Knowing that he was still out there, not knowing where he was. How would you ever relax again? You wouldn't, basically. So (laughs) this year, Laurie released her memoirs, Stalkers, Saviors and Samhain. And that's our main source for the next two episodes. In it, she tells the story of how her parents, Morgan and Pamela, were left with a traumatized daughter and no idea how to help. They watched her as their previously straight-laced daughter became a heavy drinking party girl. Party girl makes it sound light and like a phase you'd go through in your 20s, but this was over the top. Laurie was the girl at the party you spent the night trying to avoid because she was clearly dealing with something. Laurie was dealing with something, something big. And before she could process these feelings and work through her trauma, tragedy would enter her life again. When in 1979, Laurie's father, Morgan, passed away from a heart attack. Laurie blamed herself for her father's death, feeling the stress and worry brought on by her current lifestyle was the catalyst for her father's death. And unfortunately, her mother, Pamela, agreed. Laurie tried to get her life together and started therapy. But again, we're now heading into the 1980s. So Laurie was handed a prescription and told to get on with it. I imagine back in those days, it was when a woman came in with any problem, it was here's a bottle of Valium, go fuck off. Oh, yeah. So, 50 years beforehand, it would be here's a vibrator. (laughs) So, while she was no longer out drinking and taking recreational (laughs) drugs recreationally, she was drinking and taking prescribed drugs at home, self medicating her mental illness, but really just feeding her depression and paranoia. In this time, Laurie had a few relationships. She doesn't delve too deeply into them in her book. 
She wanted the book to focus on the fight and survival against evil. So her two marriages and the one night stand that led to the birth of her daughter Karen are really only in there as footnotes to her story. What we do know is that Karen was born in 1981, two years after the death of her father and a year since her mother had kicked her out of home. When Laurie fell pregnant with no clue as to who the father was, her mother had had enough. Between the constant paranoia, fits of rage, depression, drinking and over-medicating, Pamela had had all she could take. She kicked Laurie out and told her to stay away until she could get her life straightened out. I think Pamela had some shit to work through here too. She clearly blamed Laurie, Laurie from Morgan's heart attack and death. I think she was projecting that grief and anger onto Laurie, who was herself dealing with the trauma from 1978, the survivor's guilt and the guilt and belief that she was the cause of her father's stress-related death. Two of them needed therapy. Huh? They needed therapy. Oh well, yeah, like grief therapy yeah. or something like that. But yeah. I mean, like, it must suck because it, she kind of was a little bit to do with the extra stress oh, well, that the man yeah. was under, you know. But again, it's not her fault. I mean, it's victim blaming, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? Again, I think if someone's having like constant fits of depression and rage, that's not really their fault either, unless it's like drug induced or whatever. But for her, that is trauma. Just like, you showing know. the lack of understanding for mm, mental health at the time. Exactly. Laurie's idea of getting her life straight was prepping. It was at this point she became a recluse and the whole cult of Thorn, Jamie Lloyd, Mitts and rumours started around Haddonfield. But really, Laurie was still in Haddonfield, convinced her boogeyman would again return and determined to be prepared to take it down when it did. She sold her story once to a cheap rag of a paper and used the money to fund her high-security compound home and after that refused all interviews going forward. When you say high-security, you mean it too. Laurie Strode's compound would put H.H. Holmes Hotel to shame. The modest-sized home was decked out with the top-of-the-range security floodlights, booby traps, a gun range, and a well-stocked state-of-the-art panic room, which was fitted in the basement and, and accessed through a hidden passage under a floating island in the centre of the kitchen. The house was also fitted with a kill switch, but we'll have more on that a little later. This all sounds like worrying behaviour, but not harmful behaviour. I mean, I could see myself doing the same thing if I survived the Michael Myers attack, or any serial attack for that matter. The problem was though, Laurie wasn't alone and had a child to raise and to take care of. Karen was homeschooled with most of her curriculum skewed towards survivalist techniques, trap making, gun assembly, target practice, hunting and drill running. Sounds like a pretty good school. Okay. Fun school, anyway. <laughs> By the time she was eight, Karen knew how to fire a gun, how to build traps, and was able to fight. She'd be the modern-day Bear Grylls. Yeah. She had nightmares for years about the house's basement, which was filled with an arsenal of weapons. When Karen was 12, social services deemed Laurie an unfit mother and took Karen into foster care, and Laurie was never able to regain custody of her daughter after that. Eventually, Karen met and married a man named Ray Nelson, and together they had a daughter named Allison. Karen remained estranged from her mother for many years and became resentful of the fear and paranoia Laurie had instilled within her from a young age. You'd feel awful for her. Like, everything she's went through, she thinks she's doing the right thing in preparing her daughter for the terrifying world around her, but really she's just making her an anxious, paranoid loner, just like her mother. She had to be taken out of that environment for her own good. And I think Laurie would agree later when you see how she bounces back from the events that we're about to discuss. This was an eye-opener for Laurie at the time. This is like 1993 at this point. She was forced to start following the rules and guidelines laid out by child services if she was to have any hope of getting Karen back. 
and she was making good headway. It took three years, but she got to the point of unsupervised visits with Karen with the view of a sleepover visit in the very near future. And that's when Dr. Loomis died. Over the three-year period of trying to get Karen back, Laurie had reconnected with Dr. Loomis and regularly spoke to him by telephone using this as a form of therapy. Loomis was the only person she knew who could understand her feelings when it came to Michael. He shared her fears but was able to reassure her as he had Michael tightly locked away and under constant sedation and supervision. That's why when Dr. Loomis passed in 1996 and news that Michael would be returning to Smith's Grove in Haddonfield, Laurie had a relapse and fell back into old habits and once Michael was transferred, spent most nights parked outside the sanitarium, standing guard, heavily armed and with a bottle of Jack Daniels to keep her company. Essentially killing any chance she had of regaining custody of Karen and putting their relationship as a whole on pause because of Laurie's obsession. So whose bright idea, you might ask, was it to return Michael Myers to Haddonfield, Illinois, given all the history and survivors left in the community? Well, that's where Dr. Ranbir Sartain comes in. Dr. Sartain was a student of Dr. Loomis and had become fascinated with Michael's case. He studied the case files and eventually took over Michael's treatment after Loomis passed away. He would continue to try and reach Michael to understand his motives, but all his attempts were fruitless. It was for this reason he requested to have Michael transferred, returning him to a familiar surrounding, hoping to jog a little memory, a little nostalgia to get the monster's brain going. To be fair, over the 18 years since Michael's last stint in Smith's Grove, the sanitarium had undergone major renovations and had been upgraded to a state-of-the-art maximum security hospital, so it was probably the best place for Michael medically, in theory. In theory, yes, but in practice, not so much. Michael showed no improvement upon his return to Illinois, and the clock was ticking for Sartain to get results. I say ticking, he managed to drag Michael's time in Smith's Grove out for another 22 years, convincing the courts to allow him to try every experimental drug and therapy style in the book. The world needed to know what made Michael tick, at least Dr. Sartain believed so anyway. Everyone else that encountered Michael in that time agreed with Loomis and Laurie, feeling the evil ooze off him. He should have been destroyed like a rabid dog, taken out of the game before he had a chance to come back and cause even more damage. Michael had been seen by over 50 clinical psychiatrists, and with each, many different opinions. Loomis reasoned that he was nothing more than pure evil. Sartain disagreed, saying evil was not a medical diagnosis and that under his more holistic approach to Michael's therapy had seen a marked improvement in Michael's aggression levels, even testing the theory by leaving two kittens in Michael's cell overnight with them, seeing them come out on the other side unharmed by the once fierce boogeyman of Haddonfield. I wonder what year this was because Peter wouldn't have been too happy. Holy shit, Sartain, you're going to get cancelled. Do you think he, Michael was clever enough not to... Probably. Okay. I mean, most people who came across, like most like doctors like Loomis and a few others that would have been close to him would have made the statement. I think we said it in the first episode mm. that Michael was a lot smarter than Don't he thought. Like, you know, yeah. That there was an intelligence in there. He was like, even when it, when it came to him not speaking, it was a choice not to speak. It wasn't that he couldn't, it's not that his brain wouldn't let him, it's not that there was a mental problem stopping him. It wasn't like autism where you become non-verbal or anything like that. This was just, he made the decision, he was not going to speak, and that was it. Okay. Do you know, so so they they reckon there wasn't a, and I think we even say it here at some point, like he, 
You said it one some at some stage that like you know they found maps and stuff in Michael's fucking room multiple times. Like, yeah. you know, like they, they knew he was trying to get out. Yeah. You know that yeah. he was planning something in his head. Like Sartain put but when it came to him mellowing out with the kittens, Sartain put this down to age, saying Michael was an evolving, aging animal like the rest of us, and the time was taming the beast. Exactly as Smithgrove Brass taught back in 1978 when Michael was seen as docile and a near-perfect inmate at the sanitarium. The big thing that the higher-ups in Smithgrove wanted here was for Michael to talk. Like I said, they knew he could and he chose not to. Mm. A breakthrough in that regard would be a monumental feat in the psychological world and in the process of understanding the mind of the most animalistic killer in American history. Unfortunately for Sartain, by 2018, 40 years had passed and not enough progress had been made with Michael to justify the expense of keeping him in a facility of the quality of Smith's Grove. And it was decided that the need for budget cuts and the perception being all that could be learned from the shape had been learned to transfer Michael back out of the state to a more basic facility to live out his days in irrelevance, hopefully forgotten to time as an urban legend. Forgotten and hopefully never to be replicated. Ever. (laughs) Satan was growing desperate and had one more theory he wanted to employ. The theory he had was that Dr. Loomis gained the ability to control Michael in a controlled environment due to him being the only doctor to have had, and I quote, the privilege of studying Michael in the wild, out in his natural habitat, doing what comes natural to him, just like any other beast in the wild. He believed that if he could lead Michael back to Haddonfield and back into the life of Laurie Strode, then maybe he could gain some insight that would allow him to finally crack the mind of the most cold-blooded killer America had ever seen. Sertain was gullible and believed, just because he spent a lot of time with Michael and was Loomis's replacement, that he had built a kind of trust with Michael, believing that if Michael wanted him dead, he could have easily done so at any stage over the past 22 years. It was for that reason he believed he could stage a breakout on the night of Michael's transfer, replicating the events from 40 years ago, and by doing so, becoming the only man to really understand and explain the enigma that was the shape. There was one more last-ditch effort to reach Michael, although Dr. Sartain knew himself it was a long shot. Documentary producers Aaron Corey and Dana Haynes had been working on a series based on Myers and believed they could get Michael and Laurie in the same room, they would have ratings gold. First interviewee on the list was Michael, who they went to visit at Smith's Grove the day before his transfer. And this is a podcast, a documentary podcast. Okay. So they were documentary producers, but they are producers of a podcast, but I just wanted to clear it up so people didn't think it was just a normal document you can find. Oh can't find her that podcast either and we'll find out why soon (laughs) yeah they were really throwing everything at and the kitchen sink at this you know this whole thing highly broke sanitarium protocol but like you said it was a last ditch effort so it was now or never yeah the podcasters arrived during rec time and after going through security and signing their lives away with liability waivers were directed to the yard by dr sartain who filled them in on his time with michael as they went along the yard in Smith's Grove was sectioned out into boxes, marked out on a soft rubber tile floor. The inmates were chained to heavy concrete blocks that were bolted to the floor, keeping the patients confined within each individual box. Aaron Corey approached Michael first as Dana stood at a safe distance recorder and mic in hand. Sartain just watched with a kind of curious amusement. 
As Aaron approached the imaginary force field provided by the marked out floor and chain, he began to address Michael. Michael, my name is Aaron. I've followed your case for years, and I still know very little about you. I want to know more about that night, about those involved. The shape remained motionless. Aaron continued. Do you think of them? Feel guilty about their faith? Nothing. Aaron continued. Do you remember Laurie Strode? Does she remind you of your sister, Michael? Is that why you chose her? The shape half turned as if he was going to respond, but then didn't. Aaron looked back to Sartain, who nodded at Aaron to go ahead. Aaron looked to Dana. She unzipped her bag. I borrowed something from a friend at the Attorney General's office. Something I'd like you to see. Aaron then pulled out a familiar Shatner mask from 1978. Now old and cracked looking. Sartain looked to see his exchange. Aaron held the mask out before him. The shape makes no movement, but the other patients begin to become restless, pacing madly and beginning to moan. Aaron doesn't lower the mask. You recognize this, don't you, Michael? How does it make you feel? Say something! A few of the patients start screaming and testing their restraints like rabid animals. Dr. Sartain began to become concerned as more patients joined in, stomping and screaming, getting louder and louder. Aaron, caught up in the adrenaline of the moment, began to shout at the shape. Say something! The courtyard was worked into a frenzy course of madness, but the shape remained still. It was then Dr. Sartain lost his nerve and pulled the plug, ushering the podcasters back into the sanitarium away from the screaming lunatics who still wailed and screamed in the exercise yard. Sartain was nervous but agreed that if Corey and Haynes could convince Laurie Strode to return before Michael's transfer later that night, then he would allow them the time and facility to allow for the 40-year enemies to come face-to-face for what the podcasters hoped would be a breakthrough moment, and Sartain hoped would allow him one more chance at some insight before he took on more drastic measures. But that alone was going to be a massive task. Laurie was notorious for not speaking to the press and was borderline agoraphobic, rarely leaving her super secure compound, getting all she needed delivered to the house directly, occasionally allowing herself to leave to see her granddaughter Alison. On a rare occasion, Karen would allow it, or the grandmother and granddaughter team could organize a secret rendezvous. Alison only saw all the good parts of Laurie, the smart, witty woman who gave her life advice and listened to her when she had trouble with her mother. She didn't live through the prepper lifestyle her mother suffered through. So in her eyes, Karen was unreasonable and Laurie was her loving, if not a little paranoid grandmother who had lived a tough, painful life. The only look the podcasters had was that Laurie didn't have a whole lot of income coming in and wanted to give Alison a present to enjoy her youth. So when Dana offered her two grand for 15 minutes of her time, Laurie gladly accepted, fully aware in herself that she had no intention of telling these two documentarians anything. And that's exactly what happened. Aaron and Dana entered the residence of Laurie Strode, filled her in on what they planned to do, and then were promptly asked for payment and to leave her property and never contact her again. The dream of an encounter between Michael and Laurie now seemed lost to the two journalists, and with that, they decided to spend their trip visiting the sites of the original crimes as Michael slipped out of their grasps. For now, at least, as he prepared with Dr. Sartain for his transfer. The transfer was to happen late in the evening of October 30th, 2018. Along with Michael, 11 other patients were to be transferred. 
Dr. Sartain insisted on accompanying Michael, claiming he wanted to see his responsibility out uh, to the very end, just as Dr. Loomis would have done. Also on the bus was the driver, a prison guard, Matt Haskell, and Warden Michael Koonman. Why was the warden coming along? He wasn't the warden of the sanitarium. It was uh, just a te- kind of a senior term, senior officer term mm-hmm. for at Smith's Grove. Okay. Around 8pm, the bus left Smithsgrove under the anxious gaze of Laurie Strode. She was sitting in her car nearby, necking a mini bottle of vodka. Around 9pm, it was found by a father and son turned over on the side of the road, a few bodies scattered across the road and a few inmates running off into the distance. Brian and Kevin Mattis were returning from a hunting trip when they came across the crash site. Brian Mattis went to check on the crash victims while Kevin called in the accident to the police. They were both found dead. Nick snapped along with the bus driver, guard and warden from Smithsgrove. The only man left alive but injured was Dr. Sartain, who it seems was accidentally shot by, but not killed by the young Kevin Mattis, who was only 14 years old at the time. The first responding officer and closest to the scene just happened to be Officer Frank Hawkins. Officer Hawkins surveyed the scene and all he found was bodies until he came upon Sartain, who simply asked, has he escaped? Surveying the damage, it was realized that none of the inmates had been killed in the crash. Foul play was definitely afoot, meaning most likely that Dr. Sartain had gone through with his plan to free Michael. Although there is another urban legend that is definitely not true, but worth saying for the fun of it. Anyway, as you say, as we said, Laurie had been watching the bus as it left Smithsgrove. She had also been drinking and possibly self-medicating again. This was a very difficult experience for her. Last time Michael was out of Haddonfield, she was going through the worst phase of her life. Constantly paranoid, not knowing where the boogeyman was hidden away or if he could get free. And worse again, she didn't have Loomis on hand anymore to put her mind at ease and keep a close eye on the shape. So after it was all said and done, rumours started. Some of the townspeople of Haddonfield blamed Laurie for the events that were about to take place. They said she drew the boogeyman back to their once peaceful town. With that blame, a rumour started that Laurie Strode followed the prison bus out of Haddonfield and ran it off the road in a moment of lunacy, terrified to lose tabs on the man she feared the most. Ridiculous, especially when you hear about her passion for hunting him down and her bravery in luring him to her to try and avoid any other unnecessary deaths. A plan which wouldn't have worked without the help of Dr. Sartain. See, this is where Loomis and Laurie and the whole mental health system failed with Michael. They believe Michael had an obsession with Laurie, mainly because Laurie believed he had an obsession with her. The PTSD of the 1978 massacre caused her to create this toxic bond with Michael. She believed she was his white whale and that Michael wouldn't rest until he finally eliminated her. But she was wrong. They were all wrong. Michael didn't give two shits about Laurie Strode. Laurie Strode to him was nothing more than another potential victim who was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And if given the option to solely hunt down Laurie or go out and massacre as many people as he could in the little time he knew he'd had, he was happy to choose the latter. And that massacre would begin the very next morning, October 31st, 2018, Haddonfield, Illinois, Halloween. The first victims discovered were at a filling station and garage just down the road from Haddonfield Cemetery. Aaron Corey and Dana Haynes had been visiting the grave of Judith Myers while recording some content for their podcast. Little did they know they weren't the only ones. The boogeyman was lurking nearby and soon they will become more of a part of Michael's story than they had ever intended. 
Not long before midday, four bodies were discovered at the filling station. The mechanic Christian Paderewski, Paderewski? Paderewski, Paderewski right. had been stabbed in the head with the drill and stripped of his overalls and the cashier Zach Garrett beaten to death and left laying at the shop till. Inside the filling station restrooms, Aaron Corey was found beaten to death and Dana Haynes strangled, her eyes bulging from her head, her skull cracked from the force when she was slammed against the wall. Ugh. Yep. It was instantly connected to the escaped Myers as only one thing was missing from the scene of the crime. Well, outside of the mechanics overalls. And that was the William Shatner mask that Aaron and Dana had on loan from the DA's office. Or was it was it DA or the public? Uh, I can't remember. <laughs> and it was still in the <laughs> trunk of their car at the time of their deaths. They also guessed it was Michael because they had managed to round up all but two of the escaped mental patients from the accident. Apparently, they found a few of them in the library checking their emails and a group of them running around a flea market trying to catch butterflies. I'd love to have pet butterflies like your one from the great. The ones no. that follow me around. Do, do, do they really? Can you really train butterflies to follow you around? I don't think so. I think that's CGI. <laughs> train crows. That would be class. Oh, that'd be cool. Like Rick and Morty style. Oh, yeah. Walking around like Except Rick with two crows. I want to be like uh, Snow White in, uh, in Shrek where um, when you jump, her arms go out and next thing it's like Led Zeppelin and all the birds appear. Oh, I would just feel like I was Odin. I'd be walking I am Odin. <laughs> My crows. Attack. <laughs> At this point, only two remained at large. Prisoner A-2201, Michael Audrey Myers, and a Mr. Anthony Tavali. Tavali, that's what we said it was last time, wasn't it? No. Tivoli. 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 I got it. A paranoid schizophrenic who was only really a danger to himself. He became classified as criminally insane because a few incidents where he was trying to hurt himself resulted in him accidentally harming people around him in the process. Self-destructive behavior with no thought for the people around him. Exactly. Tivoli pays a big price for the boogeyman hysteria brought on by what happens next, but we'll be getting into that real soon. We sure will, because it's dark. The shape has most of his costume in place and he's ready to relive his night of fun once again 40 years later. By 10pm that night, Michael would have laid out four more victims as he mindlessly walked towards his real obsession. 45 Lampkin Lane. The bodies literally started to read like a map from the crash site to the old Myers home. Along with Guard Haskell, Warden Koonman, Brian and Kevin Mattis, Christian Pedruski, Zach Garrett, Aaron Corey and Dana Haynes, Michael killed Gina Pancella with a hammer, stealing her knife to then stab to death her neighbour Andrea Wagner. He then made his way to the Marcy residence to live out once again his babysitter fantasies. This is the first of Michael's 2018 murders that we actually have a decent account of. Because despite murdering Kevin Mattis and one more young teen later, Michael generally didn't harm children. So although the babysitter and her boyfriend were killed, the babysitter, eight-year-old Julian Morrissey, was left alive and the only witness to the murder of the two teens. He claimed that Michael was just roaming the halls of the top floor of the house, stopping only to stare at Julian for a few minutes. Julian, frozen in fear, didn't make a squeak. He said the boogeyman then walked into his room and hid in his closet. Julian obviously took this opportunity to get the hell out of there. Downstairs, Vicky Gardner and her boyfriend Dave Robbins were doing what babysitting teens do and they were getting busy. So they had no time for this boogeyman bullshit from this kid. 
<laughs> but seeing how spooked he looked and being that she was actually a nice girl and good babysitter she brought julian back to bed and did the routine monster check nothing behind the door nothing under the bed that sort of thing then she got to the closet that's when michael attacked julian ran screaming for dave to come quick he had to save vicky or they'll all die he was right. Julian ran to get help just as Tommy Doyle and Lindsay Wallace had 40 years earlier, but Vicky and Dave would not have the same fate as Laurie. Vicky was found brutally stabbed to death, posed on a chair with a white sheet over her like a ghost, glasses over the sheet where the eye should be. Dave was found pinned to the wall by a knife three foot off the floor, confirming the method of murder suspected to have been perpetrated against Bob Sims in the Wallace home 40 years earlier. 24 hours in and already Michael has his record broken at 12 fresh bodies. Cops hit the scene fast after Julian raised the alarm at a neighbor's. Again, Officer Hawkins was first in the scene, followed closely by Laurie Strode, who was keeping tabs on the night's goings-on using her own police scanner. Hawkins and Laurie were so fast to reach the residence that they got there before Michael could leave. He took so much time setting up the bodies, it gave them the upper hand. As Hawkins surveyed the damage, Laurie followed orders and stayed outside, waiting for word from Hawkins on the severity of the situation. Laurie then claims she saw Michael in a window of the house and took shot, hitting a mirror. It was his reflection she was looking at. And Michael passed by Hawkins like a flash, down the stairs and out the door, back on track to Lampkin Lane. Laurie says she hit him at least once in the shoulder as he got away, but as usual, the gun blast did little to slow Michael down. It wasn't long before first responders and reinforcements hit the Morrissey home. Sheriff Omar Barker, the man in charge when it came to law enforcement in Haddonfield, also arrived, bringing along with him an now up-and-moving Dr. Sartain. He told Sheriff Barker and Officer Hawkins that the bus lost control after Michael overtook the first guard, then the driver... He is no longer dormant. I saw him kill with my own eyes. He only knows how to keep moving and to keep killing. And he will kill and kill again unless he is captured. But why didn't Michael kill him when he was killing everyone else? Oh, he had an answer for that too. I tried to hide, but he found me. Locked me to a seat. He looked down at me. I closed my eyes. And when I opened them, he walked away. Or he gave you a pass because you freed him. Yeah. <laughs> Barker told Hawkins to bring Sartain along with him on his search. He might be a little eccentric, but his insight when it comes to Michael could help in the case. Hawkins reluctantly agreed. This is also famous for being the one and only meeting between Dr. Sartain and Laurie. It's said that Sartain looked almost starstruck at the sight of Laurie and fumbled over his words trying to get questions out. This is also when Hawkins says Laurie admitted to praying for years that Michael would escape so she could finally kill him lending some credence to the myth that she actually drove the bus off the road. Yeah, but if she had, then Sartain had enough time to tell the cops the accident was caused by a car pushing them off the road. It would have suited him down mm. to the ground because his plan would take action and he genuinely yeah. would not be at fault. The fact that he told Barker and Hawkins that it was Michael's doing tells me that the crash was a part of his plan and not Laurie's. While all this was going on, the high school was holding its annual Halloween dance, which was being attended by Laurie's granddaughter, Alison. Alison said after a fight with her boyfriend, Cameron, she left the dance early with their mutual friend, Oscar Berlucci. Berlucci was a bit of a class clown and a fifth wheel in the group of Alison, Cameron, Vicky and Dave. 
call back to Woodsboro and Ghostface. He was like the Randy of the group. Yeah. And just like Randy, he had the hots for the girl he couldn't have. His best friend's girl, Allison. But as they were arguing and he and Allison were alone, he did what every friend-zoned male would do and seized the opportunity, hoping to whisk Allison off her feet while she was still on the outs with Cameron. And just like all the friend-zoned guys before him, he failed. Yeah. Just because a girl is nice with you doesn't mean she wants to sleep with you. Really? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> so she pushed him away and left him laying in this yard they had cut through for a shortcut. She was about 100 yards away when she heard Oscar screaming, but not just any screaming. Like, it was pure panic and terror. And just as fast as it started, it stopped. And there was silence. Alison ran back to find Oscar laid out like a kebab, skewered by the sharp tips of the gate he was trying to scale when he was attacked. Alison said she could hear him breathing before she saw him. Then the pale white face emerged from the darkness. She was eye to eye with the animal her grandmother had always warned her about. The boogeyman was real and he was coming to get her. With Michael still in a fenced off yard, Alison took the chance to run, screaming for help as she went. This obviously caught the attention of the local residents who phoned it in. Hawkins and Tartain were close by and came to get Alison. They searched the nearby area and called out the coroner for Oscar, but Michael was again missing. But they were fast. He couldn't have gotten far. Sartain grilled Alison about what she had saw as Hawkins kept his eyes on the shadows, looking for any movement to give away the shape. Alison then began to freak out and pointed out the window. Hawkins saw what she saw and without any hesitation ran his squad car right into unflinching Michael Myers, knocking him to the floor with force. This is when Sartain would show his true colours. Hawkins wanted to end it now. He got out of his car, gun drawn, ready to fill Michael with holes. Enough holes that this time, he definitely wouldn't be getting back up from. But Sartain got in his way, refusing to let Hawkins kill state property. He then slipped the scalpel from his pocket and stabbed the officer in the neck. He stabbed him once more to keep him down. Then he went to inspect Michael. Taking his mask and putting it on himself before dragging Michael's body to the squad car and putting him back in right next to the frantic Allison. He then told Allison his plan to study the beast in his natural habitat and see him react to his most desired prey, Laurie Strode. Like we said earlier, Sartain had inherited this view that Michael and Laurie were linked, bonded through a shared experience 40 years ago. But really, it was him pushing them together. Michael is a killing machine. Laurie was just another bug to crush. Not that he complained, that he'd complained. I'm sure given the chance, Michael would only be too happy to get the woman that ended his last killing spree. Another notch on the knife, but that's all it would be for him. The relationship held a lot more meaning to Sartain and Strode alike. As they drove to the stroke compound, Sartain began rambling, telling Allison how he couldn't really get results from Michael as long as he was locked away. He he had tried for years to get him talking, but not once had Michael uttered a word. Allison, thinking quickly on her feet, told Sartain Michael had spoken to her. Just one word. But she wouldn't tell him until he pulled the car over and released her. The manic doctor, clearly out of his mind and delusional from years of working around and failing to understand the pure evil that was the shape, pulled the car over only yards from the stroll home and demanded to know what it was that Michael had said. Was it his sister? Was it Judith? He screamed as Alison pleaded to be left go. 
Almost like a trigger word, the sound of Judith's name woke Myers, who quickly started to stomp the front seat with his two feet, driving Sartain headfirst into the steering wheel. He then got out of the car, dragged Sartain out and stomped on his head until his head was completely crushed. Allison, who had, who had used the diversion to escape, saw the murder take place from a nearby wooded area where she hid. She then ran from there to join her family at, the gra- at her grandmother's house. There was a squad car parked right outside Laurie's in case Michael did turn up and they noticed the commotion a few yards ahead of them. They were slow to approach because it was another squad car and it hadn't done anything out of the ordinary yet. But as the car sat there longer, they felt they needed to approach. They were later found inside the strode residence, one with their throat cut, the other with his head completely decapitated, sitting on the first officer's lap, his torch stuck up through his neck hole, making him resemble a jack-o'-lantern. Yuck. Mm-hmm. Sartain's plan had been a success, even if he wouldn't be around to study the results. He had reunited old foes in Michael Myers and Laurie Strode, and Laurie was determined it would be the final meeting. She had prepared for this day for 40 years. She just needed to follow the drill. Lower in the shape, get him in the trap, then hit the kill switch. It was perfect and it was about to all fall together as planned. For most of them anyway, there would be one more casualty in the strolled home before Laurie would face Michael. And that was her son-in-law, Ray, who was found strangled to death in the front yard later that night. It's hard to fully explain, but Laurie's house had like rolling security gates on every door in the house. Like you'd see on a shop when they locked up at night. She sent Karen to the basement panic room while she went to lure Michael towards her and to check for any sign of Allison. She searched each darkened room with a shotgun and a spotlight torch, closing off each door as it was cleared. Then, just as Allison came into the house, Michael struck, attacking Laurie, knocking her from an upstairs window just as she had done to him in the past. And just in the same way, he looked away, looked back and Laurie was gone. Michael then heard all the commotion coming from the basement, with Karen trying to get Allison into the panic room before it was too late. They were making a lot of noise in the process, almost like they were trying to draw attention to themselves. And they were. The basement wasn't a panic room, it was a kill room. Three generations of strode, shot at, stabbed and beat Michael until he fell into the hole in the floor leading to the basement. Laurie then flipped the switch, locking steel bars across the hatch. She then hit the kill switch, filling the house with gas and multiple sparks. Michael was going to burn to the ground with the house, finally dead, finally forgotten. Only problem is, Laurie forgot to inform the authorities of her plan. So once a fire was reported by the neighbours, the fire department were straight out on the scene, ready to put it out. Laurie, who had been stabbed by Michael in the struggle earlier, was on her way to the emergency room along with Karen and Alison. Haddonfield had a good fire department because they were on the scene within 10 minutes of the strodes leaving. What happened next is anyone's guess, but when Sheriff Barker turned up to the scene, what he found was a burnt out house, eight dead bodies, and seven critically injured firefighters. Among the dead was Sartain, Ray Nelson, and two police officers, Officer Francis and Officer Richards, and four more first responders. There was no sign or trace of the shape in the wreckage and it had to be assumed he escaped considering the firefighters didn't fuck themselves up. So Michael's true journey continued, his journey home to Lampkin Lane. And this always had to be the goal, let alone has his trajectory been always heading towards his childhood home. But if you remember back in episode one when we spoke of Michael and Dr. Loomis's birthday trip around Haddonfield, when asked where he wanted to go, home was the first and only location suggested by Michael. 
makes that reality TV show with Buster Rhymes seem all the more dumber now, knowing Michael's obsession with his house. <laughs> oh, yeah. And the neighbours that called the fire in when Peter Dickerson was found pinned to the kitchen counter with a drawer full of knives sticking out of his back dead. The other, his wife, Sandra, was found barely clinging to life after her throat had been cut and she was made to watch as her husband was butchered. That's how pissed off Laurie was that they called the fire in. (laughs) (laughs) The Haddonfield survivors of the Babysitter Massacre in 1978 had a yearly tradition to meet up and share some drinks. At this point, Tommy Doyle, Lindsay Wallace and Lonnie Elm were the all that was left. Former Sheriff Lee Brackett, who lost his daughter Annie to Michael, who was also still alive, but on duty as a security guard at the local hospital that night. He Tom- was going to be busy. <laughs> Tommy and Lindsay, we remember as the children being babysat by Laurie on that fateful night. Lonnie was just another kid at the time who happened to run headfirst into Michael right across the road from the old Myers house in 78 minutes before his recapture. As they drank and shared stories, news came in of the murders and the possibility of Michael Myers being the perpetrator having escaped again the night before. Tommy, now a man in his 50s, had no intention of running this time and rounded up a mob around Haddonfield, hell-bent on finding and lynching this monster that night to finally put an end to the evil that was Michael Myers. Literally, the mob roamed the streets chanting, evil dies tonight. And I was kind of joking about uh, the Lee Brackett being mm. a security guard in the hospital and him having a busy night. Mm. That's because after Laurie and her family arrived there, the place kind of became like a central hub for um, the Myers search. So the yeah. police were there, all the first responders there, and there was a fucking bunch of families there, obviously looking through bodies and wounded to see was any of their family yeah. there. But because of this, then the mob that Tommy started to fucking build up all started to congregate here as well. And it kind of came the area, became the area where all these plans started to fester and manifest. Yeah. In the meantime... Tivoli, who we spoke about earlier, had also kind of followed the mob to that direct to that area. Mm. And he was still in the Smith's Grove fucking uniform. Do you know the, the, the kind of scrubs that they have on um, yeah. inmates with the fucking big Smith's Grove inmate on the fucking back of it. And somebody spotted him lurking around the hospital mm. and instantly screamed, Myers! So everybody started to lose their fucking shit. Yeah. Except for Laurie and her daughter Karen. Karen, I'm right, yeah. Karen. Karen. They knew because I mean, have you seen have you seen a picture of Tivoli? I have. He looks like fucking um, the penguin. The penguin from fucking and uh, not just any penguin. He looks De exactly Vito's. like the Vito's yeah. penguin from Batman Returns. Yeah. And so I mean, he was not the hulking the figure. Possible. Yeah, but he wasn't the hulking figure that was no. Michael Myers, like no. you know. So the mob, not making too much noise to be fucking, to, to let Laurie be heard, ends up chasing this poor man around the hospital. Mm. Karen followed and she kind of had seen where he went. So she followed him down a few hallways and she managed to trap him in between these hallways. Okay, not trap him, trap him wrong. She didn't trap him for the mob. Kept him safe. She, she put him in yeah. between these two hallways where she was able to lock the doors in. Okay, end. yeah. But the mob was too much and they were breaking through these doors and Tivoli, who was already obviously very mentally unstable, mm. in a panic, jumped out the window. Okay. To his death and suicide. So he he committed suicide to keep away from these people. Yeah. Whether he knew he was going to die in the drop or not. Well, I was just about know, to say it. He was just trying to get yeah. away from it. But he, uh, he looked extremely scared at the time is how it was described afterwards. 
Okay. Now, you'd think this would calm the mob a little bit, you know, thinking, oh, shit, we fucked up. But no, their attitude was... Shit, got the wrong person. You no. know, this was Michael's fault. We okay. wouldn't be in this way. We wouldn't be this way if Michael wasn't out there calling him. We still got to go look for him. Yeah. Now, again, this is very kind of typical in America at this time. Mm-hmm. In 2018, I mean, there was a lot of unrest. You have Is Trump in office in 2018? He's in office He's, in 2018. he's 2016, wasn't he? Yeah, so yeah. there was a lot of unrest in the country. These kind of mobs were becoming normal. You know, mm. you were have the, you and me see it a lot, and we yeah. saw it a lot in the news where you'd have black rights matters, mm. gay rights matter, mm-hmm. lives matter. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then there was the gun night, the good nuts, and the racists coming out with all lives matter, <laughs> <laughs> even though they didn't give a shit about anybody by their own yeah. fucking group. Yeah. You know, so this was becoming the norm, and we see this here again. They were kind of like, it's almost like the gods were fucking telling them, you fucked up, look at what you've done to this man. And instead they took the message and completely twisted it to their own... Agenda. Agenda, exactly. Yeah. And that, that's again, seems to be something that's very typical in America. Mm-hmm. Now, we need to be careful because I've heard from other podcasts, some of the hardcore Americans, if they hear this, will go on a tirade on us on, online like, and start freaking out because we're Irish and we don't know what we're fucking talking about. We got the news here too, bitch. <laughs> I watch CNN. <laughs> Try to stay away from American. <laughs> honest. But it is interesting. Yeah, when they had their it, election, is. it was cool. And when the war broke out between the Ukraine and Russia, I followed a lot of it on mm-hmm. uh, CNN and shit like that. Yeah. On the American channel. Oh, I came down early and you, you had it on. Like a... It was just quicker moving news. And it kind of. No. You change channel, you get a different opinion. Yeah. Uh, it's a very. 50-50 split when it comes to America on what you're going to get when you, depending on who you're watching. Anyway, as we said, Tivoli's death did nothing to disperse the mob. In fact, it caused them to dig their nails in deeper. Even gaining Allison as a supporter who left the hospital to join the search against her mother's wishes. After a few hours of driving around, a small group led by Lindsay Wallace came across some kids in a playground. Lindsay begged them to go home, but they said they were having too much fun playing hide-and-seek with the pervert man. Mm. (laughs) And besides, they were waiting for their friend Dennis. That's when Lindsay said she saw him, standing there holding what looked to be a mask, blood dripping from its neck. Dennis? Dennis, and the only or second incident to child murder by Michael... Dennis would have been about 13 at the time, so I'm not sure where he's cut off age when it comes to children, you know. At yeah. this point, it seems like once you're a teenager, you're fucked, you're fucked. because that other kid was 14 as well. Okay. But uh, any kid he has run into that has been under, under. the teen mm-hmm. age, they survived him, so okay. he wouldn't know. Tommy Doyle was next to come onto this scene, discovering Lindsay's search team of Marcus and Vanessa Wilson dead and tied to a swing set. Dennis's head resting on Vanessa's lap. Lindsay, seeing Tommy, came out of hiding in hysterics and told Tommy of everything she had just witnessed Michael do. Tommy and Lonnie split up in their search. Tommy and Lee bracket coming from one direction with Lonnie, Cameron and Allison coming from another. It was Lonnie that first made the connection to Lampkin Lane and decided that would be a good place to start their search. Lampkin Lane had been sold and renovated years earlier by an awesome couple by the name of Big John Soto and Little John Mo- Mo- Mossy? Mosey? Mosey? Mosey. 
The couple refer to each other as Little John and Big John due Aww. to the obvious name clash in their relationship and were a happily married couple living out their fantasy life on 45 Lampkin Lane. They didn't mind the history. In fact, the Johns used to love playing up to the fact that they were in the Myers death house every year, decorating it to the max and scaring little kids with tales of Michael Myers. They were found stabbed and posed exactly as they were in a photograph that lay right next to them. A photo of happier times with Big John laying in the grass, his head resting on Little John's lap. According to Alison, the house was in darkness when her and the Elms arrived at the house. Lonnie went in first, telling the kids to sit back and call for backup. Then some shots rang out inside the house. Cameron worried about his father, disobeyed his wishes, following him into the house, with Alison right behind him armed with a shotgun. She said they searched the house only to find the dead Johns, and as she examined the scene, she heard Cameron scream. When she ran to the hall, she could see him struggling with Michael. Alison tried to help, but Michael swatted her away like a fly, knocking her down the stairs and breaking her leg. Michael then proceeded to stab, beat and brutalise Cameron, all as Alison begged him to stop. Then she hit the right chord. She antagonized him in just the right way. I'm the one you want. I'm just like your sister. Same age, same hair color. It can be just like it was that night 40 years ago. She got Michael's attention, but not his mercy. And as he turned to walk towards the broken-legged, helpless Allison, he grabbed Cameron by the head and snapped his neck in a manner that looked like it was nothing but a loose end he needed to tie up. No reason, no emotion. Michael closed in on Allison, raising his knife. Allison screamed, do it, do it. But she wasn't talking to Michael. While all this took place, Tommy and Lee had met with Karen and they had formulated a plan. Just as Michael was about to bring the knife down on Allison, Karen came from behind, sticking Michael with a pitchfork, knocking him to the floor again temporarily. But just like always, the boogeyman wouldn't die and he got right back up. His eyes still stuck to Alison. But Karen hadn't always been ignoring her mother's training. And as a child, she did pick up some tips and tricks for dealing with Myers. She grabbed his mask. Backing slowly out the door, mask in hand, she baited the boogeyman out the door and over to the next street. When he got there, Karen was nowhere to be found. But his mask lay there, waiting for him to pick it up. And just as he did, the lights came on. And Michael realised he was surrounded. There was about 15 people there, all armed with guns, knives, bats, bars and sticks. But no one wanted to make the first move. Until Lee Brackett said, fuck it. And took a shot at Michael, fueled by pure vengeance for his daughter. Then Tommy took a shot, followed by others. Karen couldn't stay to watch and ran back to see Alison, assured the mob would finish the job. Are you joking? This is Michael fucking Myers we're talking about. Yeah, some survivors talk a big game from that night, but the truth of the matter is when all was said and done, Tommy Doyle was dead, Lee Brackett was dead, Lonnie and Cameron Elm dead, and of the 13 people left of that mob, three more lay critical as the rest ran to save their own lives. Michael again, nor to be seen. The last action of Michael Myers in 2018 would be his worst, for Laurie at least. While police surveyed the damage and Allison was being patched up at the ambulance, Karen's curiosity got the better of her. What was Michael's fascination with his sister's window? What had he been looking at for all those years? So she went to look and was found there 10 minutes later, bleeding from her neck, unresponsive and pronounced dead moments later. Michael then disappeared, 
No sightings, no word, no nothing for four years. Some believed he went somewhere to die. Some believe he went somewhere to wait. Laurie knew he was out there, but she didn't care. Karen's death was an eye-opener, and she couldn't make the same mistakes with Alison. But she still had to be ready, because even if Michael's body died, the boogeyman would live on. Evil can't die, it just changes shape. Hey you, wanna be the coolest horror nerd at the party? Then come check out our new line of merch at teespring.com. We got t-shirts, hoodies, hats and mugs with new products being added constantly. Support your favorite podcast by wearing the merch. Post your new gear on Instagram and tag us for 10% off your next purchase. That's www.teespring.com forward slash it's a live alive shop. Make your style alive alive today at teespring.com. Teespring.com is a third party company. All issues, questions, and refunds should be directed to them. It's not our fault. Why are you screaming at me? It's my first day. Fucking it quick. Get your own fucking t shirts. Back to the show. Last week, we discussed the second escape of Michael Myers and his journey to his home in Lampkin Lane. Not just reliving his last night of blood, but instead outdoing it, going over triple his original body count. The town of Paddenfield had taken enough, and together they banded to take down the evil. But as today's title suggests, that task was easier said than done. And while the boogeyman was down, he was still not quite out. As one body deteriorated, another took shape. 2018 had spread a virus through Haddonfield that could only be compared to COVID in its speed and severity. The town was turning in on itself and the once peaceful slice of American pie had now, was now a den of anger, paranoia and fear. After Michael murdered his final victim in 2018, Karen Nelson, he vanished. Some thought, like a fatally wounded animal, he went off into a hole somewhere to die. Some thought he went into hiding, building his strength to eventually return to more bloodshed. Some thought he really was the boogeyman, and not a real man at all. We know that's not true, and now the 65-year-old Myers was barely clinging to existence, his body badly broken by the events of his 2018 attack. In 1978, Michael lost an eye, was shot six, maybe seven times, and fell from a two-story home. Then in 2018, he was repeatedly stabbed, shot, and beaten. The exact amount is unknown as he left few survivors and didn't stick around long enough to get a medical examination. It will be revealed later that Michael spent the next four years in a sewer tunnel feeding on rats and other animals possibly the culprit of the disappearance of a few homeless people over that period of time as the sewer entrance was a tunnel located under a highway bypass often used as a homeless tent village the town of Haddonfield hadn't bounced back like it had in 1978 the hysteria that had caused the mob mentality had lingered there was still a dark presence in the town and they could feel it I suppose it didn't help them either that a year and a bit after all this, the world gets struck by COVID. Yeah, you just survived a massacre in your town where the literal boogeyman is breaking into people's homes and brutally killing them. And now you're not allowed to leave your house for the foreseeable future. Oh, and the boogeyman's still out there somewhere. <laughs> we thought we had a bad. Yeah. Now I know what you're thinking. Michael on the loose, her daughter and son-in-law dead. The trauma of not just one night of horror with the shape, but two Laurie Strode must be on lockdown. The works. 15 foot high electrified walls topped off with barbed wire. Rabbit attack dogs in the yard. An active minefield. Watchtowers, floodlights, a drawbridge, a moat. Machine gun turrets at the door. Cannon snipers. Nukes. Quite the opposite though. 
In the years that followed, Laurie made a promise to herself not to let fear rule her life anymore. And she bought a new home for Alison and herself without any traps or for the purpose of hiding. She seeked out real help and therapy and began working on her memoirs and the book that makes up the main source to our story today, Stalkers, Saviors and Sown. She was determined to give Alison a stable home and solid support system, having lived through the same experience herself and knowing what could lie ahead if she allowed Alison to follow in her footsteps. She did a really good job too. Laurie was almost unrecognisable. I really thought she'd swing the other way and lose her marbles altogether when Michael got away again, knowing he's still in the shadows, especially after murdering her daughter. Yeah, I'd be out for blood. The thing is, with Michael missing and the townspeople of Haddonfield still reeling from his last attack, the survivors had no one to point their blame at. Sure, Laurie got a little with some people taking the view that she drew him back to Haddonfield and into their lives just for existing and living there. Some even still believe the urban legend that she was his younger sister, adopted by the Strodes after the Myers family died out. But for the most part, people were just scared. They had never lived through an event like that before. 78 happened in a bubble, before the internet age and social media, before stories, pics and videos could be circulated freely within seconds. So Michael was not just an urban legend boogeyman story told to you by your parents. The boogeyman was real and his body was yet to be found. This caused some to believe there was a paranormal link. How could a monster such as Myers just simply disappear? Maybe he was an evil entity. A monster that could take any shape, or maybe it was the fear he projected on the town that would shape the next generation of evil. Either way, it happened, and it all started with an accident on Halloween night 2019, Haddonfield. Halloween night 2019, and Roger and Teresa Allen were getting ready to attend a friend's fancy dress party. Their usual babysitter was not available, as she was out partying the night away herself. Luckily, though, they had a backup in a shy and slightly nerdy kid that used to cut their lawn for them. His name was Corey Cunningham. These people must be fucking mad. They're heading out on the anniversary of Michael's last massacre while he's still out there on the loose like. Presumed dead. Yeah, show me the body. Then we can go out. Otherwise, we're getting into our PJs, parking our asses in front of the TV. Well, I'm at least just standing by the front door with a loaded shotgun. (laughs) <laughs> or we could just not live in Haddonfield it seems they've been working for us for you know the last eight years yeah. or so we lived in the Xna. no one had tried to ma- massacre the village so you know touch, touch wood, wood. <laughs> so far Corey Cunningham was what you would call an all-around good kid kind polite did well in school and worked hard to earn his keep as his family wasn't the most well off they were by no means poor but they weren't taking yearly vacations or using the latest iPhone if you know what I mean yeah lower middle class like exactly Anyway, the way Corey tells it, after the Allens left for the party, himself and Jeremy sat down to watch a scary movie. Actually, it was The Thing. Just watched that with Riley. Such a good movie. So much fun. (laughs) Teresa Allen had warned Corey that the events from the year before had left Jeremy feeling anxious, causing him to have nightmares and occasionally wet the bed. So they weren't supposed to be watching the scary movie. Bad babysitter Corey. <laughs> Do you remember that song? I'm a bad babysitter. I'm a bad babysitter. No. No? No, I've never heard of that. Oh, I got to play that song yeah. for that afterwards. It came on the radio there one day at work and I was like, oh, I haven't heard this in so <laughs> fucking long. If that was the worst he would do, then, well, we'd have a shorter episode, so yeah. we'll keep going. Jeremy, being a little pain-in-the-ass kid, began to antagonize Corey, eventually pissing Corey off, causing Corey to send him to bed. But Jeremy wasn't ready to go to bed, and he ran off telling Corey he was playing hide-and-seek, and he wouldn't go to bed until Corey found him. 
Corey played along, searching the large suburban home for Jeremy, giving the kid one last bit of fun before bedtime. This is literally our fucking nightly routine. Uh-huh. Yep. Come find me, play hide and seek. And then you find him and he freaks out and he makes <laughs> you do it again. And then you find him and he freaks out and he makes you do it again. You found me wrong. And then you give out <laughs> to him and he finally gives up after you do it one more time. Yeah. <laughs> Fine. And that is parenting. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Jeremy played Corey, uh, played Corey making a noise in a little room upstairs by the main landing. Once Corey went inside to search for Jeremy, Corey claimed Jeremy locked him into the darkened room. Corey said he began to feel severely claustrophobic and since Jeremy was not responding to his calls, began to panic after the events from the year before. He began to kick the door out of fear and anger of the situation he had found himself in. Little did he know, or so he says, Jeremy was standing right outside the door. And when Corey finally broke the door open, the blast of the door hit off of Jeremy, causing him to fall backwards and over the landing banister, landing head first on the hard tile below, falling an estimated 25 feet. An accident for sure and a tragic one. The only problem is Teresa and Roger Allen saw it all from a different perspective, causing the story to become muddled, to say the least. Yeah, as Corey kicked at the door, the Allens arrived home from the party. They claimed that as they reached the front door, they could hear Corey ranting and raving, screaming, I'll kill you at the top of his voice. They entered the house just in time to see their only son land with a splat on the floor in front of them. When they looked up, they saw Corey staring back at them. And here's where it gets really weird. He was holding a kitchen knife. When questioned later about the knife, Corey was unable to give an alibi, saying he couldn't remember how it ended up in his hand. But the audio from the home security cameras confirmed his story, clearing him of any wrongdoing and ruling Jeremy's death as a tragic accident. Not a popular decision when it came to Teresa Allen, who believed Corey did it on purpose and hit the bottle hard after her son's death. Angry that Corey got to go on living his regular life while her son would never see his hopes and dreams realised. But Corey didn't go back to his regular life. As we said earlier, with Michael missing, Haddonfield needed someone to blame. And unfortunately, due to the date of the accident, all that attention found its way to the Cunningham household. Corey became a pariah in his community and taking on almost a surrogate role for the shape. His future was in tatters, his name mud. It's a wonder he didn't just leave Haddonfield. And go where? Again, we're in the age of social media. A quick Google search and we're playing This Is Your Life. Regardless of if you're in Haddonfield, Dublin, Moscow or Alaska, there's no running from your past in this day and age. True. Maybe that was his logic. At least he still had his family in Haddonfield as well, even if that consisted of his overbearing, nagging mother named Joan and her husband, Ronaldo. Ronaldo owned and ran a scrapyard and when Corey's college and work prospects fell away after the 2019 accident, he gave Corey a job stripping cars for a living. Corey didn't receive much therapy after the accident and seemed to regress into himself. He was regularly bullied and abused, both physically and verbally, by passers who recognised the troubled youth. It was in one of these encounters that he happened across Laurie Strode, who found him surrounded by four youths, who had knocked him to the floor, cutting his hand on glass in the process. Laurie cleared off the, twi- the twins, the teens, <laughs> and picked Corey up, bringing him to a local medical facility. It was just those two twins from fucking The Shining standing over him going, Come and play with us, Corey. No, <laughs> No, 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 no. The paranormal is just for next week. So... <laughs> 
Anyway, as I was saying, she um, picked them up and she brought them to a local medical facility. A medical facility that also happened to be the place of work for her granddaughter, Alison. Laurie playing matchmaker here a bit, I think. Yeah, and unfortunately for her, she was good at it because it didn't take long after that for Corey and Alison to become an item, bonding on a shared experience of Halloween trauma. You say unfortunately because instead of becoming a support system for each other, they started to feed off each other's insecurities. Corey being the aggressor when it came to fueling the instability. I talked about this as well when we uh, talked about Columbine, something we're mm. going to cover a little later on in Real Monsters, about Klebold and Harris, how Klebold was kind of the aggressor of the two mm. and kind of uh, led Harris along by Harris's insecurities yeah, yeah. And, and depression. Alison met Corey when he was already on the edge. All it was going to take was a slight breeze to push this guy over the edge, and that's what happened on October 28, 2022. Alison and Corey attended a Halloween party together. Laurie, as part of her therapy, embraced the holiday and all its traditions, so she encouraged Alison to dress up and go out and have some fun. It was at this party that Corey came face-to-face with Teresa Allen for the first time since the accident, now exactly one year ago. The drunk, grieving mother berated Corey, causing him to fumble out the door and as far away from the community that shunned him. Alison followed close behind him. After a brief but heated exchange, Corey ran off, leaving Alison feeling confused and frustrated. On his way home, Corey was again accosted by the same teens that had been scared off by Laurie a few days earlier. Again, another heated exchange played out, and when the teens made moves towards the shifty young man, he pulled out a knife, swiping at the teens. Roadside cameras footage picked up images of the kids rushing him, knocking him from an elevated motorway down about 12 feet, leaving him lying right next to a sewage tunnel entrance. It would be this roadside footage that would eventually lead detectives to Meyer's old hideout, but that would be all after the fact. It's believed that once Corey came through, came through, he was accosted by a homeless man. This man would become Corey's first victim and the first official, his first official act of murder. Forensics would later put his time of death about six hours after Corey fell on the 30th of October. He was stabbed with a penknife, the same knife Corey had used to attempt to scare off the teens the night before. Corey was again caught by roadside cameras, leaving at about the estimated time of death of the John Doe homeless man, and the murder weapon was found discarded close by the scene of the crime, Cunningham's prints and the man's blood all over it. It's believed that this must have been the first time he came into contact with the shape. I mean, we know now Michael was using this section of sewer as a home of sorts. It would be crazy to think that Corey could spend the night essentially on Meyer's doorstep and have absolutely nothing happen to him. Crazier again that he could sleep at all there that night and live to tell the tale. Exactly. So the question is, why was he left alive? What happened between Corey and Michael that caused them to bond? Did Michael see the evil in Corey's eyes? Or was he just too weak and old to work alone now and saw the potential of having Corey as an apprentice? Unfortunately, we're never going to really know. But we can try and put the story together as best we can using common sense and educated guesswork. As Corey began to form this strange relationship with Michael, he formed an even more intense relationship with Alison. Together they began to make plans to leave Haddonfield and the past in their rearview mirror. But before they could, Corey felt he had some loose ends to tie up, some books that needed balancing. And with Michael as his mentor, that meant only bad things to come. 
After going home to clean himself up, Corey went to visit Alison with the view of making up. This was when Laurie said she first started to have reservations about Corey, saying that there was a change in his eyes. Something was missing from him that was there only a few days earlier. Corey and Alison took a walk, making their way to the scene of Jeremy's accident, the now abandoned Allen household. Bad idea. This guy is unstable and now he wants to go back to where all his misfortune started. Alison should have seen this wasn't healthy and stopped him. He told Alison, we were making paper planes, but he wanted to watch a monster movie. Everything happened so fast. I just wanted it to be a fun night. That's all. Just a good night. And then it all went bad. Alison said she responded with, I heard what happened. I know it sounds crazy, but when people talk about it, it was like I knew you, like I was looking for you. And then she brought you to me. She says now in hindsight she feels foolish to have opened up so much to him, knowing the crimes he would soon commit. She partially blames herself for his delusions, as victims from this point on are more people Corey saw as obstacles or people inconveniencing her, and she admits herself not to be in a good place herself at the time, telling Corey if she'd had a choice, she'd burn the whole town to the ground. Little did she know her other half would take that phrase literally and begin his murderous rampage with his second kill of the day, this time sharing the honour with his new mentor, Michael Myers. After their trip to the Allen residence, the couple went to a diner before heading home. There, Corey got into another heated exchange with an officer, Doug Mullaney, a former suitor of Allison's, who had been out with her on one date and was determined to get himself another, even if that meant sticking his nose in the middle of her and Corey's current date. When Allison rejected him and he noticed who she was with current, who she was currently out with, Mullaney made a big scene to highlight Corey's fatal past. But cooler heads prevailed and everyone went back to their seats before any violence could break out. Soon after, Corey and Allison left using, using Corey's motorcycle to get home. Now, Corey had been through enough shit in Haddonfield the past year to know when someone was following him, as some people sometimes did, to hurl abuse or physical violence at him. So although Allison didn't see him, Corey did, and after dropping Allison home, led Officer Mullaney on a little trip, leading him right to the doorstep of the ever-elusive shape and to his certain death. Doug Mullaney's body was found in Michael's sewer on November 1st, time of death estimated to be the 30th of October. Judging from the body's condition and the last known movements of Officer Mullaney, he was beaten, strangled and stabbed repeatedly. It's strongly believed that Corey held Mullaney in place as Michael stabbed him to death, slicing his throat for good measure. The beast was awake, master and apprentice ready to take on the galaxy. Had to get the Star Wars reference in. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> And the beast was very much back up and running. The bloodlust reignited by Corey's violent offering. Corey, like his aide, would now direct the older Myers and point him at the targets he felt needed to go. Next on his list was Allison's boss, Dr. Tanner Mattis, and her co-worker and head nurse slash lover of Dr. Mattis, Deb Jennings. Again, this is a murder Allison unintentionally put in motion. She was complaining to Corey about how Deb had snagged the head nurse job from under her. Not due to work ethic or merit, but due to the fact that she was a good-looking girl who was happy to sleep with the doctor. This slight to Alison was all the motivation Corey needed to feed the pair to the shape. And so on October 30th, almost as a warm-up kill before the next big night, Corey and Michael went to the home of Dr. Mattis and sat in wait. First, Corey attacked Dr. Mattis, waiting for Deb to go get changed into something a little more comfortable. 
He jumped the doctor, covering his face with a plastic bag before stabbing him repeatedly. Then he chased Deb, who caught him in the act, back into the house, pounding on the door momentarily before stopping to watch as Michael pounced. Lifting Deb off the floor by her throat and completing his trademark move, sticking her to the wall with a knife dangling a few feet from the floor, a pool of blood dripping down around her feet. Not to be outdone by Michael Corey also wore a mask, a plastic scarecrow mask that he took off as he watched Michael at work, positively IDing him later as the killer. Yeah, Dr. Mathis was loaded and had a high-tech house, like everything was wired up and voice automated. He also had the best in-home security and CCTV, so this whole crime was caught entirely on camera. But since their bodies wouldn't be discovered until after the next round of murders, Michael's return to the mainstream had yet to be noticed. Not long after killing Madison, Jennings, Corey went to pick up Allison and they went to Corey's favourite hiding spot, the roof of the local radio station, to talk and get away from the world. They eventually made enough noise that they got the attention of the radio DJ working the night shift, DJ Willie the Kid. Willie fancied himself a bit of a true crime buff and liked to sensationalise the legends of Haddonfield on his show for ratings. So when he came across Corey and Allison, he knew exactly who the pair were. He basically told them that they were both freaks and that Laurie teased Michael into doing what he did. He then told them to leave his property before they called the police. Nice guy. should really watch his tongue if you ask me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The couple had had enough and they decided the very next day they would leave the town forever together. Allison went straight home to pack. Corey went home momentarily, had an argument with his mother, then left and went to sleep in the old Allen house. It was there Laurie found him sleeping the next morning, October 31st, Halloween 2022. Laurie had seen enough evil to know when someone was no good. And although she had no idea how or why, in a matter of just days she had seen this bright young boy she introduced to her granddaughter degenerate into an animal just like her old foe. Dead behind eyes with anger that sunk deep into his soul. The following is an extract from Laurie's book and it's the conversation she had with Corey that morning. You know, there are two kinds of evil. There's the evil that exists as an external force that threatens the well-being of the tribe. Survival depends on understanding and awareness and fear of physical threat to our daily lives. The other kind of evil lives inside us, like a sickness or an infection. It's more dangerous because we may not know we're infected. Corey asks, Am I a bad person? Are you? Well, we're both fucked up. I want to help you, Corey. Let me help you. Or let me find help for you. You can't have her. Alison is not equipped for this relationship and I will not let her get hurt. So stay the fuck away. Corey. You started this. You brought me in. You invited me. You're the one to blame. If I can't have her, no one will. You want to help Alison? Let her live her life. She has me now. You should give in. You should surrender to that feeling you had the first time you ever looked in his eyes. You secretly hope Michael comes back for you. And I'm a psycho. That makes you a freak show. And with that, Laurie left, hoping to instead talk some sense into her granddaughter. But Laurie wasn't fast enough and Corey quickly contacted Alison telling her to be ready for our 9pm at the diner off 74. He also told her Laurie had come to see him threatening to kill him if he didn't cut ties with Alison. Alison was obviously still in a very emotionally fragile place because she was head over heels for Corey and believed every word he said. As soon as the workday was over she would return home to grab her things then it was bye bye Haddonfield. 
In the meantime, Corey had some plans of his own. The apprentice was done learning from the master and it was time for him to take his place in infamy. Knowing that Michael was in a weakened state and tired from the violent activities from the night before, he went to the boogeyman's lair, ready to take the crown and leave the old man to rot in irrelevance, hidden away in the sores. Again, I don't know how he did it. There must have been a bit of a struggle. But that night, it will be Corey Cunningham under the William Shatner mask, replaying the violence it had come to symbolize in the small town of Haddonfield. Makes you think there was a struggle for the mask. Like, is it possible that Michael just passed it on to Corey as a gift, a way to keep his legend alive now that he was unable to perform as he once could? It's always a possibility. I mean, it's not like we're dealing with a rational man here, but considering Michael would soon come looking for that mask back, I'm taking an educated guess and saying he didn't part with it willingly. Uh huh. While Michael might have been down for the count, there was a new boogeyman ready to take his place, or take his shape even. Donning the Michael Myers uniform of overalls, a butcher knife, and the iconic inside-out Shatner mask, Corey Cunningham began his reign of terror as the new shape leading to the belief that Michael was back in town. He was back in town. I know. Imagine how confusing that shit was. Beware of Myers. Who? The guy in the white mask? No, just he just has overalls now. Oh, good. So the white guy in the white mask is safe. No, he's crazy too. No, wait. No, it's too late. You're dead. Haddonfield, where anyone could be a killer. <laughs> Doubt the Illinois tourist board will go with that as a town slogan. But sure, <laughs> it does fit. First on this chopping block were the four teens who had been tormenting Corey in the weeks leading up to Halloween. He antagonized them at the same filling station they first accosted him at and led them on a chase to his place of work. His stepfather, Ronaldo's scrapyard. Once inside, he closed the gate and hid amongst the old wrecked cars, watching the teens every move as, he, as they searched for him, looking to give him a pounding. Although they couldn't find him, they did find his bike and they decided to tie a chain to the wheel so they could drag it with their car, destroying it in the process. The ringleader, Terry Tramer, directed Billy Martin to get the car, while Margot Harris and Stacey Main tied the chain to the bike. After a minute or two, Tramer started to call Billy, trying to get him to hurry up. When he got no response, he went to the car himself to see what was the holdup. There he found Billy dead, sitting in the front seat, a screwdriver driven deep into his right eye. (laughs) That's when the truck started up and the lights hit the two girls who were still left standing near Corey's old motorcycle. The girls took off running for the gate. Stacy got over in time. Margot wasn't as lucky. And just as she reached the other side, the tow truck Corey was driving collided with the gate, crushing Margot beneath it. Stacy ran to her friend's aid, forgetting the threat of Corey was still present. And as she comforted her friend, Corey approached her wrench in hand and proceeded to beat her to death on the spot. As we discussed in the mini-show this weekend, Halloween is known for being a time of not just costumes and candy, but when it comes to teens, a time for mischief and vandalism. For this reason, Corey's stepfather, Ronaldo, was on guard duty at the yard that night. He was watching a movie on his laptop using headphones when Tramer raised the alarm with him. Giving Tramer a shotgun and arming himself, Ronaldo went outside to see what all the commotion was about. <laughs> CCTV footage, sorry, at the scrapyard, show Ronaldo coming out surveying the scene, seeing his stepson's handiwork, and in an attempt to save him from Tramer, putting himself in the way of the bullet meant for Cunningham, dying instantly from the shot. 
When Ronaldo hit the floor, Corey was gone. Where seconds before he stood holding Meyer's mask in his hand, now stood nothing but nice. Tramer got closer to try and save the still moaning and stuck Margot. That's when Corey crept up behind him. Masks now firmly affixed his face. First he knocked Tramer to the floor, then he took a blowtorch and burned his face off all as Margot was forced to watch. He then finally put Margot out of her misery, stomping on her head until her skull crushed under the pressure. Next stop was a little closer to home. His mother was found stabbed to death in her favourite chair in her living room. Forensics showed DNA from the slain teens, so we know this murder was next on his timeline. From here, he had one more stop before Laurie's, and this will show you how petty he was. On his way to the Strode home, he stopped off at WRG 94.9 The Urge to pay a little visit to Willie the Kid. He, along with his assistant Susan Prince, were found dead at the station. Willie with his tongue cut out. When he was found, his tongue was still spinning on a turntable. This was one of the first deaths discovered because Willie was old-fashioned and he used vinyl on air. So his dead head and tongue making the record skip did attract some attention from listeners of his show. It also attracted the attention of Laurie Strode, who was desperately trying to get her granddaughter's attention, ringing and texting her in the hope that she might get one more shot to convince her of the truth before it was too late. When you live the life like Laurie Strode, you're bound to get an intuition for this kind of thing. So with that, she locked up, went upstairs, lit a jack-o'-lantern she had on her fireplace, had a whiskey and rang in a suicide to the police. She then took her gun and took a shot. Corey rushed into the room. He had been stalking her the whole time and she knew it. It was the jack-o'-lantern she had shot. And once he was baited into the room, Laurie shot him twice, blowing him down the stairs. Leaving him gasping for air. Laurie once more tried to get through to the mentally ill young man. Begging him to give up and atone for his crimes. Or just get on with it and kill her like he had planned to do. But that's not what Corey had in mind. Laurie's way would just prove her right in the eyes of Alison. And just dig her deeper into the pit of Haddonfield. And after all he had done to try and cut her ties. Release her bonds. Set her free from this dark and dire place. Haunted by doom and death. Laurie representing that the most. He'd do anything to ensure Alison's safety and happiness and that couldn't happen here. And if it meant he'd have to be a martyr to get her away from Michael, from Laurie, then so be it. He took the knife he had intended for her and he jammed it into his own neck. Just as Laurie grabbed the knife from his side, Alison walked in, playing out just as Corey planned. She ran back outside, got in her car and began to drive. Laurie, thinking it was over, sat back and waited for the cops to show up after her suicide call. Then she realised she wasn't alone. The back door was open and she could hear light footsteps growing heavier and closer. Then she heard Corey gargling again. She peeked out and there he was. Michael, back after four years, again driven back into the life of Laurie Strode by another psychopath consumed by the evil that lived inside the boogeyman. Michael quickly finished Corey off, turning on his apprentice, just like the bad guy in all Star Wars films. Now, with that out of the way, Michael had one loose end to tie up. I know I said last week he didn't really care about Laurie, but she was there and he liked to kill. So again, this whole scene held much more relevance to her. Laurie said she and Michael began to struggle fighting around the kitchen of the house. She knew she just had to keep him busy long enough for police to arrive. 
but with Michael a second is all he needs so this was going to be a hard task again though Michael is a 65 year old man whose body has been through the ringer so this isn't the same animal of 1978 or of even 2018 he was definitely on his last legs regardless I think even if he had got the better lorry he would have never got out of there before the cops arrived and michael would have been put down that night regardless along with that hawkins had rang allison to see what was going on after the suicide call so she was on her way back now as well Laurie described how he bashed her head off of the cupboards, the fridge doors, and threw her around the room like a rag doll. But in a moment of pure luck, she managed to grab a knife and pin his hand to the counter with it. She then mounted him, using all her strength to hold the beast down, taking a second knife and pinning his second hand to the counter, whacking the knife in deeper using a frying pan like a hammer. She then dropped the fridge on him to secure him in place. The shape finally stuck and at her mercy. First, she stabbed him in the heart. Then she unmasked him. I've run from you. I've chased you. I've tried to contain you. I have tried to forgive you. I thought maybe you were the boogeyman. But no, you're just a man who's about to stop breathing. She then proceeded to cut his throat and both wrists, leaving him there to bleed out as she watched. Alison arrived just in time to land the final blow, seeing Michael Myers die once and for all, ending the reign of the boogeyman of Haddonfield. And to show just how much weight this man held in Haddonfield's lore, a normal funeral would not do. Breaking all sorts of protocol and losing Officer Hawkins and Sheriff Barker their jobs, Michael was strapped to the top of Laurie's car and a procession of sorts began to form behind him as the people of Haddonfield followed the body of the boogeyman to his final resting place. Back to Ronaldo's scrapyard, where his body was dumped into a metal shredder, ripping the shape to pieces, leaving no trace or marker in its place. But even with Michael dead, would the boogeyman stay away, or just like it did with Corey Cunningham, would it just again change shape? Was Michael the tormentor or the tormented, and just like the cult of Torn believed way back in the 90s, was he nothing more than a vessel for the hate? I suppose only time will tell. For now, Haddonfield has enjoyed two uneventful regular Halloweens and Laurie is happy. Travelling the country, currently promoting her book. Allenson is also travelling, seeing the world and seizing the day, trying to make a positive out of the negative handed she had been dealt in the past. Hopefully they both live happy lives and the story the shape can fade with time, taking its evil spirit with it. And that's it. We're done. The Michael Myers saga is over and our biggest series to date yet. Four episodes and an anxiety-driven meltdown. What a ride. Great story. A lot of work, I think, but we learned a lot from it. If you enjoyed that, then go see the ingredients that make it all work with our Patreon-exclusive shows, Real Monsters, our true crime companion piece to this week's main subject, and Behind the Mask are now our movie discussion show. Along with that, you get early access to our main show and all of our mini-sodes, all for only a fiver. Not bad. So if you want to buy me a drink, buy me a sub instead. I got all the whiskey I need right here. With that, until next week, I'm Dr. Smokenstein. She's Amy Rose. See you next week. Same alive in lifetime, same horrorverse channel. See you. Love you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.